and welcome. My name is Jolene. And I'm Emma. Two costume designers who shared love of horror and fashion history have brought us together to deep dive the horror genre, going behind the seams to uncover, understand, and analyze iconic horror characters and costumes that are simply to die for. Today on To Die For, we're covering your four favorite slasher villains, the gruesome foursome, breaking down their costume evolutions, discussing their character arcs, and giving you a look into the history behind them with minimal spoilers. Horror franchises are the heart of the horror community. Fans bond over their licensed merchandise, compare films, binge watch a whole franchise in one night, and have fond memories of watching these classics as a kid. In chronological order, we'll dive into the stories and the creators behind these iconic looks franchise by franchise. First, we'll dive into Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, then Michael Myers from Halloween, Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th, and perhaps chat a little bit about Pamela too. And finally, we'll discuss Jason's match, Freddy Krueger from Nightmare on Elm Street. We can't wait to dissect these horror icons with you. So let's dive straight into the world of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I am super excited uh, about this topic, first of all, because like we were talking about, Emma, I think this is pretty much how most people get into the genre in some respect. Right. Um, like they're going to be watching, you know, Friday the 13th. They're probably watching Halloween as a kid. Like these are the movies that you put on at sleepovers that scare the crap out of you and that you probably shouldn't be watching, but you're watching them anyway. Right. Yeah. They're yeah. kind of a comfort food, I think, <laughs> yes. for the horror community and, and also people outside of, you know, being massive horror fans. I think that Absolutely. people have fond memories of these specific films. Yes. And they have become so much part of just popular culture canon as well that like I'm pretty sure in the 80s there was a Ronald Reagan speech where he's talking about like America not becoming a nightmare on Elm Street. And I'm like, you kind of missed the mark there, buddy. But right. I see where you're going. <laughs> Right. Well, specifically in the 80s, I think that there was really this heightened sense in the zeitgeist of like, oh, my God, we can't let our kids watch these horror movies. They're going to literally be murderers down to like actual cases trying to prosecute kids because they were horror fans, you know? Yeah. It was like massive, particularly during this time. And even though horror did exist before this with, you know, Universal Monsters, which was a different generation of yeah, um, horror fans. It changed in the 70s and 80s into something that they were bringing in more realistic gore and things like that, that I think really startled the the nice American family. And, um, you know, I think it, it's, it's just a place for, you know, misfit kids to really find their home in. And that's why I'm super excited to chat about this, too, because it's a topic that I think is really close to both of our hearts and also the community in general. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to start with, first of all, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 1974. Um, This movie changed a lot of how we think about the trajectory of horror as a whole, because before this time we had what was called the Hayes Code. Um, And for those of you that aren't familiar, the Hayes Code was enacted in the 20s when talking pictures became more prevalent. And it basically gave Hollywood a set of guidelines, moral guidelines of what you had to put in a film. So things, certain things you had to say, certain ways characters had to be dressing, and certain American values that you had to uphold within these films. And then this obviously stifled a lot of filmmaking. Um, There was 
really only the white cisgender perspective, uh, male perspective of filmmaking. You would get, you know, you would get women in the films, but these were written and directed and produced by men in Hollywood and in production companies where you were working your way up through the ranks of these studios. And then in 1968, the Hayes Code is dropped. And this is where you see horror really take off. I think the most pro- like prominent example would be Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby, where like you're dealing with Satanism, you have nudity, you have freedom of choice by women of like, just down to like her getting her little Vidal Sassoon haircut and other stuff like that. And then as we get into the 70s and we see this through Amer- through the American history lens specifically, because we're, you know, Emma and I are speaking as Americans, that you had the Vietnam War, you had all of this turmoil, you had news being projected into the home. And these films in the early 70s were a direct result of all of this, like, protesting all of this violence, all of this, everything that you were getting at this time. And you could really, really see that in Texas Chainsaw. I mean, like you watch the film and it looks like it feels dirty. Like you run your hand across any of the surfaces and it's just going to be dirty. (laughs) (laughs) Horror is really a reflection of the current fears of that time period. And I think that that is super prevalent in Texas Chainsaw Massacre specifically. It's, it's you know, especially in the 70s where, like, they so wanted to kind of... Uh, people were reacting in a way where they wanted to do cheerful, happy things. But Texas Chainsaw was like, listen, this is where we're really at. Yeah. So um, in this great um, book that I was reading called The Last Great American Picture Show by uh, Maitland McDonald, um, He has a chapter about the exploitation generation and how in the 1970s, marginalized movies came in from the cold, basically, is what the chapter is called. Um, And for the first time in the 70s, you were seeing low-budget filmmakers who did not work their way up through those main studios, so Paramount, Warner Brothers, MGM, making films, getting recognized. The midnight movie becomes a big thing where you could go to CD underground theaters in Manhattan, in Chicago, in Detroit, and see movies made by marginalized voices. Finally, you got movies made by people who didn't have a lot of money telling really gritty stories. And this is where Texas Chainsaw is birthed out of. But also in contrast, we're looking at this movie in the height of things like The Godfather and Star Wars and Jaws, other gritty, gritty pictures, but main major budget gritty pictures. And I really like this quote that they that he uses in the chapter where he says, once an outsider, always an outcast. To make films beyond the mainstream was to be tainted. And I think that really summarizes what horror was doing and what it continues to do throughout the genre now up until today. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it evolves. But I think that that sentiment remains. Yeah, absolutely. So now talking about Leatherface and we're talking about masks and Emma and I have been having these really delicious discussions about masks. Um, I mean, Leatherface is like the poster boy for the mask killer. He was the one who introduced this mask killer into the zeitgeist of our culture. And in, in more, you know, reading um, Oscar Wilde wrote this really interesting 
essay on costuming, on masking the persona. He was talking about in contrast to like Shakespeare work and how Shakespeare was the first person at his time to really think about costuming his characters, thinking about the person's persona, the character's persona versus the actor's persona um, and how the costume was a masking of the actor, but an unveiling of the truth within that character. And I think that that just so beautifully captures exactly what costuming does. We are masking the actor and we are uncovering the truth of that character. We know this character. So for somebody like Leatherface who is wearing a mask, where we don't see his face, we know exactly who he is. Like, out the gate, right? we we know his truth. We know what is happening with him. So that is a great little segue into his costume. <laughs> he really so, wears his heart on his sleeve, literally. Ab- like, that's literally. sort of what it is. Like, yeah. masked killers and villains literally wear their heart on their sleeve, but... The, the true nature of their heart and their their fears, their trauma, their, you know, all the nasty stuff that we try and hide with maybe our skin suit, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, and, and the, the idea of using a mask too dehumanizes them, but then through the characterization of, of what other actions and and clothing that they're wearing it it also humanizes them so there's that weird juxtaposition that's going on because as humans we're programmed to seek out faces in things if we can find a face we can empathize with it and if we can't see a face like these killers don't have except freddie um we can't really empathize with them we can't bargain with them in any sort of way so if they're hurting us we're just we're staring at a blank face even if that face is a mask it's it's still not a human face right or in leatherface's case it's like amalgamated human face so it's like kind of a human face but right that's what makes it a very interesting costume and a very interesting mask design absolutely i mean this so this series is just it's crazy um because <laughs> of the <laughs> the trajectory that it has taken yeah. um <laughs> Gosh, so I'm I'm focusing on the first four films, not the remakes, not the prequels. Same with Halloween. I'm going to do that as well, where it's a little bit more than four, but basically just that initial canon, not talking about Rob Zombie's films, but then bringing back in um, the David Gordon Green films. Because once you get all these remakes, like there's so many offshoots. There's so many. So I just wanted to keep it kind of clean because we have so much information to talk about. So um, first Texas Chainsaw Massacre was released to the world 1974, written and directed by Toby Hooper. It was at its best, an independent film, very low budget um, to the point where there was no costume department. So we might name some specific designers. We're going to have a PDF for you guys linked in the show notes of every wardrobe soup and costume designer on each of these movies so that you have a full detailed list and that we could credit the proper designers um, because we want to make sure that credit is where credit is due. So Leatherface in the first film, he's got those three main masks and he's mostly seen in his butcher's um, apron and his trousers and just a, a simple like 
army khaki shirt. Um, except at the end where he's got the little suit on. But he's got his three main masks. So he's got the killing mask. He has his pretty woman and his old lady. And these are the faces of him. And when I was doing research last summer for my blog, um, I, I mean, come on. This is why we did this podcast, because it is so hard to find any of this information anywhere. So I reached out to the only man I knew that could answer this question for me, Mr. Joe Bob Briggs. And he did. He answered my question before I worked with him, too. So like for him to answer my question was just I, I was really touched. Um, so he was telling me that these masks were made by a plastic surgeon in Texas, um, and they were just you know, fabricated molds of people's faces. Um, and there was no costuming department. So there was no budget for a costume department. So all of the costumes were provided by the actors themselves. Um, I think as a whole, they made some pretty great choices as far as, I mean, it's Texas this summer. They've got white pants on, you know, Sally's got her white pants and her purple tank top. I think that's very cute. Um, very innocent looking. It's a nice final girl look. I think it's kind of there's some realism to it yeah, as well, absolutely. where it's like, I don't know if they're in that time period and they are choosing their outfits. Not only are the actors themselves comfortable in those outfits yeah. to then give a better performance, but it does give a sense of realism as far as them getting into their own character's head and what fits their body. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Yeah, and um, so that plastic surgeon's name is Dr. Walter Barnes. Um, unfortunately, he has pa since passed um, when I was doing some research and seeing if he was still alive. Um, but he is located in Austin, Texas. I don't know if his, if his practice is still there, if he has any successors in that field. Um, but he was the one who made those initial masks. And when we put out the, the little bat signal on Twitter, you guys were awesome and came back with some really great questions. And... One of them from uh, Lord Humongous on Twitter, he asked um, about Leatherface and the idea of cross-dressing and if this makes him more terrifying or less terrifying. And I actually do have quite some things to say about that. Now, I am a cisgender woman. I'm not trans, so I don't have those insights to say about him. But I will say that when he is shown in the pretty woman or the old woman mask, he is doing domestic duties. Now, this movie is a 70s film, and there was a lot of threat to this, quote unquote, American home values um, by the outside or the other, right? Like, that's the main trope in a lot of horror movies is the threat of the other. And right. when you have all of this upheaval, and like we said, when you start projecting the violence of and the realities of war into the home that weren't talked about before this time period, you're, you start to question whether your reality is real or not. What, you know, I don't need to stay in the kitchen as a woman anymore. I can go out in the workforce. And we started getting the second wave of feminism out at this time. So we're starting, to, we're seeing Leatherface in his pretty woman at the dinner table with the absence of a mother figure wearing a woman's face or a painted up version of a woman's face and he doesn't kill he f he is then chasing sally towards the end of this film still wearing this mask in his masculine suit juxtaposed with that feminine face and he's fumbling about it's like he doesn't know how to wield his chainsaw anymore which i think is a powerful image that he was able to kill every other kid up to that point 
with that masculine face on. And as soon as he switched, he starts to fumble about. And and it's it's a pretty powerful image of Leatherface as a whole in that way. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Emma? I completely agree. And I, I think that it's a very like the topic of identity and maybe gender or sexual identity when it comes to uh, costuming in general is a really dense topic, but a really good one that I would love to explore in maybe a future episode. Yes. Um, and, you know, specifically <laughs> with Leatherface, I think that it is very powerful. And I will say that I do think that is part of what makes Leatherface one of my favorite uh, characters on this lineup, in especially in terms of the costume design. Um, because this is a case where we are seeing depths of the story that aren't maybe overtly told, but they're being shown to us through the yeah. costume. And they're a little bit, it's maybe a little bit up for interpretation for the viewer, but I do think it's very powerful. Um, whether it has to do with gender identity, um, I think that even just on the surface level of, uh, you know, the feminine, feminine uh, uh gender roles and standards uh, versus masculine, I think that it is really powerful in showing that kind of dynamic and also that perhaps, um, you know, perhaps he felt more at home in the feminine uh, role, in the feminine mask. And he sort of was able to, he lost the, the masculine that yeah. he had found comfort and power in before. Um, and of course, that's just, a, it's an angle to look at it through. Um, but I do think that is, it's an important work, I think, in horror and in identity film in general. And I think it's definitely something to con consider more and always be thinking about. I like to chew on that one. Um, yeah. Because there's a lot, I think, that you could look at it from, a lot of different angles. There are. And, and it is quite layered because then when you get into the second film, which comes out in 1986, so we have almost 14 years later, um, a gap in between these two films, there is, we have Stretch is our final girl. All of the other characters around, you know, the Sawyer family and our, our, our cop, our sergeant, they're all men. And, and Stretch is kind of... I mean, she has a gender-neutral name. She goes by her nickname. Um, her her look and identity is very androgynous itself. You know, she has quite, you know, kind of an 80s female mullet. She's wearing a lot of denim on denim. And But then it is hinted at that Leatherface might be, you know, sexually attracted to her or in love with her, which is why she is, her life is spared. But there is only that one mask for Leatherface in that whole film. He's in a suit. It's a little bit more comical of a suit. I mean, you have the 80s wide tie with a tie clip and but it's still that black suit and he's and he's just shown in the one mask the whole film. And it isn't until the third one that we get Leatherface back in the feminine look again. Again in the end of the film, it's a lot more stylized. It is a lot more overtly feminine. It's not just a mask. It is a whole like you know, negligee robe, like those old sheer Hollywood women 
like I'm coming to answer the door <laughs> because my wealthy husband has just died kind of robes. Right. Well, and that's the image of, you know, the feminine ideal, really. Yeah, absolutely. And but in that one, as opposed to the 70s one, he's seen killing in that one. And we get that like um, remake of the iconic last scene from the 70s in the 90s film where he's swinging the chainsaw around, but he's doing it in this feminine face. And in the 90s, we start to get this new identity of females in horror where they are stronger. We, you know, we've gone through the 80s where we had this final girl boom and this slasher boom. And women are starting to take the helm of the ship now. We are starting to we have women like Buffy coming out where we're starting to create our own narratives and yes. create spaces for ourselves as um, not just final girls, but as heroes. And we have Jada Pinkett and the crypt, you know, Tales in the Crypt, where she's a final girl, but she's also the hero of the story. And they're more female centric um, positions being upheld. So. And right. I think that that's really interesting that that's we see him in that. Now, I I don't know. I, I don't know what your thoughts are, Emma. Um, I, I'm curious to know what the trans community specifically thinks about that last look that he's wearing in the third Texas mm -hmm. Chainsaw because it is so done and he's so enveloped in this feminine look where it does look fake. It looks prosthetic, but he's imbuing the female persona like 100%. Mm -hmm. It's not just a mask anymore. So I'd be curious to know what, what, you know, people have to say about that. For me, it is absolutely one of the greatest horror films made. Mm -hmm. And I think that it has a different quality to it than the other slasher films. And that is probably because it was essentially one of the first of this nature. Mm -hmm. um, it is the first of its nature, arguably. And because of that, I, th I think that there is a quality to it where they are able to explore things maybe more authentically to the story they were hoping to tell mm -hmm. um, versus, you know, not to knock the other franchises. But I think that this has a more there's denser topics that are, I think, getting looked at in this film, in this franchise. And I think that gender identity is one of them. I don't. Personally, I don't believe that it's just a gag. I do believe yeah. there is a deeper layer to it. And that's really what I love about horror. It's the ability to uh, showcase things that were, you know, humans are either struggling with or their fears or maybe, you know, showcasing what other people are afraid of when it comes to people that aren't fitting into the mm -hmm. cis, white, straight standard. Yeah. Um. And showcasing our, our rage, our frustration, our fears, our, you know, stress around trying to find our identity um, and the showcasing the tension of not being able to be our full selves, I think, is something that we do see specifically in Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, and many other horror films. But that being one of one of first. And so, yeah, I definitely think it's an important one when it comes to identity for sure. Absolutely. And it, in the third one, you see him taking on a lot more roles, not just with the mask persona of himself, but it is introduced to us then that Leatherface has a daughter and that this like 
family that they've created, this Sawyer family that now has a mother figure and now has potentially Leatherface's daughter and these other siblings, a young Vigo Mortensen, <laughs> and like all these other people that have kind of come together to create this safe place for them. And then there's the weird Illuminati subplot. That's a, yeah, that's a whole different one. But, <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> but it, yeah, but it's interesting that he is playing the role of mother and father. Mm-hmm. But book ending in this film where he's first seen as the father and then at the end ending as the mother. Right. I, I thought that was interesting how they played with, with costuming. And then, I mean, he has the most different versions of the costumes yeah. over his four films than any Absolutely. of the guys that we're going to talk about. Um, and they do because, feel very intentional. Yeah, they do. And do, they do. And you could definitely see that um, each – and this that's the thing about working in a franchise, I think – is what is a little bit hard for designers, us coming into the job that does upset the fandom is, you know, you as a designer, you're trying to uphold what has already been done, but you're also, you want to put your stamp on it in a way that fits right for you because every designer is going to come at the piece with a very different perspective or, you know, just, Maybe little tiny tweaks and nuances to, to keep it, you know, the same, consistent. But um, you do start to see the personalities of different designers come through in these characters because you want to know that you had a, a, a part in that. So I think that that's mm-hmm. – and I think that's what um, a lot of fans don't necessarily understand, which is not a bad thing because it's not talked about. But I think they get upset when it doesn't stay consistent in the way that it was yeah. in the original. But then um, – but yeah, I but yeah, I think it's and so Leatherface definitely has the most diversity in his clothing. I mean, this mm-hmm. third one we're seeing him in, he's got the leg brace, he's got the um like the muddy like Carhartt trousers and the the worker shirt and he's got that nice mullet. <laughs> Great <laughs> in mullet. This one. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. And then, yeah, as opposed to like his suits in, in the first and second one, which the second one was actually costumed by Karen Hodder, who it was the wife of Toby Hooper, and they divorced in 1990. So um, he, he employed his wife for that second film. Mm. And I thought she did a great job at it, too, because mm-hmm. um, it, it, I mean, it, it follows what they had put in place for the first one, and she amplified right. it, enhanced it. Um, but you don't always get it lucky to hire your spouse, so you have to... Right, who, who can to- see your vision entirely. Right. But, you know, I do think that with... Leatherface is, I think, when it comes to being, especially out of this four, um, a franchise where that costume goes through so many um, stages and evolutions. Yeah. Um, this one, I think... Because I, I agree. I do think that when it comes to, you know, horror franchises, maybe especially with like Jason, Freddy, the later 80s ones, I think that's where horror fans really started to feel like we wanted to see them in that same costume. But mm-hmm. I think there just is a different quality to Leatherface where I, I'm genuinely okay with the iterations he goes through because the iterations he goes through costume-wise, feel like they are more relevant to the plot than maybe the iterations Jason will go through, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we actually didn't get the female masks back until the mid-90s in the fourth one. So that is right. at least a 30-ish year gap 
of not seeing a feminine face on Leatherface, which mm. is really interesting. Um, and then the fourth one gets a little weird. And I know that people think that that one is a, the least in canon because, um, you know, you get, oh no. Okay. So the weird Illuminati subplot is the fourth one. The third one is baby Vigo Mortensen. I did have that right. Um, and it's, it's gone back to that grittier version. It is mirroring the seventies one the most. Um, but we're keeping him in that masculine mask. He has the leg brace. The the trailer is just insane where the chainsaw just pops out of the water and he just grabs it like Excalibur. <laughs> He's just standing there. Um, but then the fourth one, which was the 90s, um, we we do return back to that Leatherface archetype. Um, and this is the one with Renee Zellweger. And she is in that virginal white prom dress in contrast to all this grittiness that Leatherface is wearing. He's got the jumpsuit. He's got, you know the brown trousers, all of those images. And then we also have Matthew McConaughey, most of the movie, just kind of yelling. And I really enjoy Matthew McConaughey a lot. Um, and he actually was didn't want this movie to get released at first because he didn't want it to ruin his career. Oh, my and gosh. So, and they held off releasing this movie um, until – um, Renee Zellweger had another movie that was coming out and then they then put that in the trailer again. They were like, Renee Zellweger as seen in this movie. Oh, smart. Yeah, smart to like, kind of like piggyback off of that other movie that she was in. And I thought that was interesting. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So it is the fourth one the final installment in this first little chapter where we see him strike as the feminine. Um, and then we did get another really great question from um chandler bullock I, I believe i'm pronouncing your last name right shockaholic is your twitter handle um but he was hearkening back into that both leatherface and jason are backwoods killers who wear a mask to hide the shame they have their biological faces mm. how do you feel their attire plays a role in differentiating their vastly different yet similar personalities and you can totally get into that with jason i didn't know that leatherface was hiding or trying to hide his face because I actually had not, I've never seen the the remakes of them. Um, some new horror remakes I don't like. So, uh oh. <laughs> well, because when I was in high school and I and I love Nightmare on Elm Street's my favorite. And then I saw the because I was in high school when the the 2010 version came out, and I was mm -hmm. like, what? I paid money in the movies for this, and so like. I get really skeptical and then it kind of changed my mind because I was like, well, it was really good. That was a great remake. So now this new Exorcist remake and the other ones that come out, I like give them a chance first. So in doing my research in 2003 remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they actually say that he has a skin disease and he's trying to hide it. And so that's where the masks come into play, which I didn't realize in the original story canon. So I think that that's an interesting point. So, I mean... That I mean, let, let's get in. I mean, that could feed into ableism. The fact mm -hmm. that like he is not or he is not acceptable, quote unquote, by society. So he has to hide his face. He has to feel the need to hide his true self. I love Leatherface because I feel like there is a lot to unpack with it. And it's the one out of all these four that I continue to chew on. I think that, you know, it's just a really great piece of horror it's a really great piece of horror because you know as much as the other films do reflect certain fears and anxieties of people i think that this one is a much more personal one 
yeah. than, than the other ones are. And so for that, that's something that I'm always really drawn to. And I'm really interested to see what they're going to continue to do with all the remakes and the reboots with, you know, Leatherface. Yeah. Are they going to just drive it into the ground or, <laughs> you know, are they going to be like, hmm, we hear what people are drawn to the most about these films. We're going to keep going. And so yeah. I, you know, as much as I don't like reboots a lot of the times, I still... I, I will still give them a chance like you do. And yeah. I am genuinely intrigued to see what they do with Leatherface's costume because Leatherface's costume has so much. It's not like where it's like a Jason reboot where his costume will just be like a little grittier, you know? Right. It's like there is there are elements to Leatherface's Ooh. costume that are absolutely necessary for the plot and that mm-hmm. his costume truly is part of the plot. And so... Um, I'm just I'm interested to see where that goes. Yeah, and and this one feels slower. It it feels less like a machine. Like the other ones, when they started to see success, you started to see them come out quite quickly mm-hmm. after one right after the other year wise. And this one has those big gaps in between each of the films, right? So it does feel a little bit slower paced, a little bit more thought out, like you were saying, yeah. where there's devices in his in his costuming that is used some of it not might not be used right away but yeah i think that's interesting i think i will after this definitely go back and watch those those reboots those early 2000s reboots mm-hmm. um because you know like we're getting in twitter qu- questions there are things that weren't touched on in those earlier ones through costuming that were right. then explained um so i definitely want to see that but i yeah i i love i love me some other face i just love Absolutely. gritty Gritty movies. Me Love gritty too. Movies. I I just appreciate when a movie is willing to go there, and is when yeah. a movie is willing to be bold enough to do something really buck wild, but it also reflects mm-hmm. you know what people are going through right now. And absolutely, and what horror loving like lady like myself doesn't take comfort in. I mean, I I love hearing the sound of chainsaws when I go through haunted houses or just like, I'm like, oh, it sounds like Halloween to me. Actually, when I was reading my article, I had my windows open and one of my neighbors was ripping a chainsaw into it. And I was like, oh, this fits. This feels right. This, yeah, this is like, it's like really comforting white noise to fall asleep. To. Yeah. There's chainsaws. Uh, Absolutely. It's, it's really fine. I... I am fully accepting of that spooky bitch title that like will listen to horror movie scores and fall asleep like a baby and it's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, okay, so now the opposite of Leatherface, we have Michael Myers. Yes. And he is exactly what you're saying where these movies were turned out one right after the other and they are just kind of grittier versions of the same costume, essentially. Mm-hmm. So... It was definitely like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So I, and I wonder how that is for a costume designer coming in on a project, knowing that like they have some creative freedoms, obviously with the surrounding characters, but the main guy, like, don't touch him, don't fix it. Like you do nothing, you know, maybe that was the conversation. Maybe it wasn't, but like, we're going to put some paint touch ups. You can distress, but that's about it. That's honestly... You know, one of the biggest things that I've seen, I think, across the four of these and maybe consistently just throughout genre film and franchises specifically is that the more time goes on and the more iterations of the same 
costume go on, especially when it's something like Michael Myers, where, you know, unlike Leatherface, they are generally in the same exact outfit. Yeah. They, costume designers want to put their own spin on it. Generally, what that ends up looking like is just distressing. It is like just trying to make it look (laughs) a little grittier than before. And like, sometimes that works for me. Sometimes I'm kind of like, okay, predictable, maybe even more so in like contemporary stuff and in reboots where it's like, look, it's, it's, it's Jason, but this time he's covered in dirt, you know? (laughs) Mud can't stop him. Yeah. You know, and like, it's always this sort of like, I find that costume designers generally tend to, and maybe it's not even of their direction. Maybe they are being told that that's what the director wants. But maybe, you know, because it does actually come through in the writing as well. Generally, reboots are trying to be grittier. They're trying to reach for a further sense of realism. I think that's something that has happened just with film and horror in general as time has gone on. But when it comes to the costuming that's reflected in, oh, a serial killer will have a, you know, a dirtier looking costume, you know, to reflect the grittier reboot or something. So I feel like you see that not even just in like, like in any reboots but sequels is that perhaps it's just a little more roughed up right yeah so the first one came out 1978 um written by john carpenter directed by john carpenter with the help of deborah hill um and starring jamie lee curtis the young jamie lee curtis um she oh my gosh i i jamie lee curtis is such a babe i love her i love her whole film trajectory Small oh my god yeah jamie i'm lee curtis obsessed rant. with her we could, do, we could do a whole episode on jamie lee curtis i have listened to her um i also listened to the in bed with nick and amy nick and megan podcast with uh nick offerman and megan Mullally, and mm-hmm. she and christopher guest her husband were on it and they were talking and i i just gosh i just love her love oh. listening to her talk i can listen to her talk about Anything and everything. <laughs> I completely agree. And I couldn't think of a better couple, Christopher Guest. Um, oh, I know. Really <laughs> and you know what? But she is so awesome in interviews too that like, so in doing research where these films don't have costume designers, it is so hard to find any information on like original concepts of how things got developed. And, mm-hmm. but she's in interviews saying like, no, um, her and Beth Rogers and Deborah Hill. So Beth Rogers was the wardrobe supervisor. So usually if there is no budget money for a designer, because designers get paid more money in the higher in the hierarchy tier of, of costuming departments, um, the designer will get paid the most and then it trickles down from there. Um, they will usually hire a wardrobe soup just to kind of keep track of the comings and the goings and the continuity of the film, um, where they're basically, if you are familiar with the theatrical version of what a wardrobe supervisor is, they are keeping the wardrobe department just afloat. So they're doing any small repairs. They might be making some bigger decisions if the designer isn't present. I guess for Beth, um, she was working directly with the actors, it sounds like, to make these decisions. But um, Jamie Lee Curtis talks about going to JCPenney's with Beth and Deborah to buy Lori her, her looks. And I think that that's so... I love that because we're, we, we're, first of all, we're getting information and we know exactly where those costumes are coming from. But I think that it, it's really important to show how close designers work with actors. I don't think people realize just how close we work. They're kind of consulting. I mean, the director works obviously the most, but I mean, grips, set guys, like, 
production designs, like they're not really consulting actors, but we're the ones in the room with them, showing them the rack of clothing, saying like, you know, this is these are my best of the best. What is speaking to you? Let's talk about this character. And that is what's starting to happen now in, you know, within the last 30 years of movie making, that costume design is becoming a recognizable profession that, you know, you can make money at this and you can go into this. And it is um, finally getting the accolades that it deserves after years and years of movies <laughs> being made. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, and I think that that conversation, I mean, I just think of like, you know, interviews with like a- other actors who get together and they say that they've done the work prior where, you know, they like hung out or they played mother and daughter and locked around a mall together just to kind of get the feel of the characters. Well, this is kind of a d- getting the feel of the character from a different angle. You're you're walking through the rack of this department store and you're talking about this character and you're you're buying her back to school looks. You're back to school Literally, yeah. For Laurie Strode. And I think that is awesome. Um and and this is and this is the movies where we're starting to get this idea of the virginal babysitter, the virginal final girl that we see Jamie Lee Curtis at the beginning of this movie. She's wearing her white pantyhose. She's got her floral skirt. She's got her turtleneck on. She's got a cardigan on top of her turtleneck, which is fine. It's Indiana. So it's good. It's going to be a little chilly. Um, so, and yeah, I mean, before this we had, Olivia Hussey and we had Marilyn Burns as our final girls who is Olivia Hussey was Jess in Black Christmas and Marilyn Burns was Sally in Texas Chainsaw and those girls were not virginal final girls I mean Jess says blatantly to her boyfriend I don't want this baby and I'm getting an abortion and in the 70s that was so unheard of and then to have her survive a movie you know and and not have that be the reason why she dies and I mean, we we don't know too much about Sally, but we can assume if she's hanging out with other, hip- I mean, they're portrayed as hippies, you know, kind of cruising in a van. She's probably had sex a few times in her life and, you know, and she shouldn't be punished for that. But this is the first time we actually get people, women specifically, being punished for these vice choices that they're making. Um, yeah. And, and then we've got Wholesome Little Lori. Yeah, that's really interesting that, you know, it goes to show that it's not just like, I don't know, the those kinds of standards that we are or things that we punish women for. It's not necessarily linear or what's popular isn't necessarily what's going on. And it's not like, oh, it's like the older films are the more women are punished for certain things. But it's like you can see pretty clearly in the 70s, we do have some relatively strong final girls for that era but you could say that maybe with this we regress just a little bit on the uh, sex positive front for women absolutely and this was the time when it was the height of that second wave feminism the era was trying to be ratified and you had this right-wing group of women really strongly like protesting the ERA, um, saying that they were, you know, not, um, what, you know, what happens if you take a woman out of the home, like our homemakers, not valid. And, and unfortunately, like 
when movements start to happen, it, it it's very black and white at first. Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, now thankfully we can say, no, I mean, if that's what you want to do, as long, you know, make the choices that you want to make as a woman, that's what we're saying. That's what we want. Mm-hmm. But at the time, there was just so much heightened. I mean, and then it completely takes a 180 in the 1980s when Reagan is elected and yep. go back to these very interesting value, fam- familial values. Um, yeah. It just goes to are, show how much yeah. the socio-political environment genuinely influences the media Absolutely. that's happening. It's not a coincidence. Absolutely, yeah. And, and just even like – it's, it sounds weird, right? So when I look at films sometimes, I wonder, like old movies, especially in the 70s, I wonder, because um, you can tell kind of when women aren't wearing bras and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I, and Laurie Strode is definitely wearing a bra. and But Marilyn Burns in Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not. So it's interesting to see the contrast of those two women. So you wonder like what their sociopolitical leanings are as characters too, that that mm-hmm. choice made at a time when like bra burning was super big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's super fascinating. And and I think a very relevant angle, you know, small choices like that not only reflect what's happening in real life, but gives you more insight into that character's background too. And, and you know, it, their background can influence small details like that that help the costume make sense for the character and vice versa. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so we have this virginal final girl, and she's contrasted by Michael Myers, our shape, our killer, our faceless killer. Um, and, I mean, you guys probably all know the story about the mask. I think that has become sort of like lore in itself, where it was a William Shatner mask bought for like 99 cents at a party store on Hollywood Boulevard and was just, you know, it was nondescript enough that they painted it, they made the eye holes a little bigger, and they just kind of roughed up the hair a bit. So and but nothing um, the choice of the jumpsuit was never really explained to us in the way that the mask was. Um, But he's got, you know, this blue jumpsuit. We can assume it's a a prison or asylum uniform because he does break out of the the mental asylum at the beginning of the movie. Um, So we can assume that that is, you know, what he was wearing. Um, Although in the David Gordon Green version, you know, the the newest sequel Mm -hmm. i'll put air quotes because they have been sequels and then they well we'll get into that um (laughs) but he the the jumpsuit is explained where he goes to a gas station and he like curb checks the one guy and put you know takes the teeth out and like scares the podcaster in the this is gonna happen (laughs) to us emma don't don't pee in a gas station ever And then he's st- and then he kills the mechanic and he steals his jumpsuit. So um, we do get a little bit of explanation from that, but this one isn't explained. Um, but then we also see him in the clown costume when he's a child, and I th- that's a very interesting reading too. I mean, you have mm-hmm. this jovial, small, blonde little boy um, killing his sister, killing. We think. I think it's presumed that he he kills the boyfriend as well. Um, we mm-hmm. only see him kill the sister, but um, and it's his POV that we're seeing this brutal killing at the beginning of this film, and then he's unmasked out of this clown costume, and it's a little boy. And then in two thousand, not in two thousand, um, in the fourth, uh, fifth one, no, fourth one, fourth one is mm-hmm. his niece. We find out 
because then they they tie in the weird family arc in the right, in the film the whole element. Yeah, so in the return of Michael Myers is his niece, and she's also in the clown costume. Different color scheme, but she's also in a clown costume. Very as interesting. Her Halloween costume, and she's a little evil in that movie, and she's a little, <laughs> a little spiteful. Um, yeah, so it's it's interesting the connections that are being made through this film. Now, the original mask was lost after the first film, and so in the second one, it isn't the original mask. It looks slightly similar. Um, the third one, I mean, he's not even in, and and, and the. What they were going to do was do like an anthology film, and that's what um, John Carpenter wanted was an anthology film. But because it came out as the third movie, not the second movie, it made less sense. So people got angry that Michael Myers was there. So they brought him back for the fourth one. So the fourth through up to H2O, he has a different mask per film, and each of them are slightly different. Um, there's, I think it's the fifth one that looks the wonkiest, where his eyes are just huge, <laughs> yeah. and he's got that slicked black hair. It's just, very uh, interesting how wonky a lot of those masks are, and I'm like, I don't know how intentional that was, or if they just happened, those were just the masks they found. Yeah, and um, so Shudder has this great show called The Core, and it's this cute, cheeky little, like, talk show mm. where um, Mickey Keaton and... Um, who is a writer-director himself, he sits down with different people in the industry and they bring on somebody, um, I actually for forgot who, but they bring on somebody to go through all of the iterations of the Michael Myers mask. So if you have Shudder, I highly recommend giving that episode a watch because um, that's really fun to see the different masks. And then I believe the we've gotten to a place now with technology and like casting and, and molding in um, special effects makeup that the new iterations with David Gordon Green's films, they do look like the original mask. They're just mm. more cracked. They're more weathered. Um, right, that distressing. Yeah, again, yeah, just just uh, <laughs> sprinkle a little bit on it. It's fine. Yeah, just break it a little. <laughs> but you know what? I mean, we joke, but as costume designers, and you can totally talk about this too, that like distressing is hard. Oh my gosh, yeah. It's really difficult. And you almost, if not yourself, you need – someone to do yeah. aging and dying especially in horror costuming yeah because there's continuity in film because not everything is shot on the same day so you could be doing a killing scene and then a couple weeks later or a couple days later do the scene that comes before it and then maybe revisit that scene that you did four or five days ago and you have to make multiples and the multiples have to be consistent and mm -hmm. it's it is an art form um there are videos up on youtube that if you ever want to look at distressing um the national theater in london does really great behind the scenes videos and they have one about distressing for theater which is super cool to watch to different techniques and stuff that is used but yeah it's hard Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is really difficult and on top of yeah just having like there's a million different ways to distress and a million different tools and things that you can use to do it but I think the real trick to good distressing is have being able to get all of your multiples correct and yeah. when you're costuming film aside from distressing you generally will need multiples because you know, whether it's like the hero costume and it's just like backups to be safe um, with, you know, when it comes to genre film, horror, action, sci-fi, if there's any kind of like, if your character goes through anything where 
their clothes are going to get ratty, but they're wearing the same outfit or they get blood on it or dirt or anything or like space scoop, you know, <laughs> anything you're going to need multiples of you're, you're getting multiples of the same costume, but then multiples of each iteration of that costume. And yeah. you have to get, you have to be able to get the distressing <clears throat> to look the same on all of those, which is very difficult. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, like you need the multiples because humans are humans. Um, and I learned in my professional career. So what, growing up in theater, you are allowed to tell actors don't eat in costume. Um, right. Once you once unions are involved, you can't. You're not you allowed can't to say tell anything. <laughs> so you just kind of have to leave people up to their own devices. You can give them bibs. You can give them things. You can suggest that hey, maybe that red Kool Aid you probably shouldn't be drinking in that cardigan. Mm-hmm. But um, you can't you can't like smack it out of their hand anymore. Right. No um, catch up on while you're wearing the big white dress. Maybe no. not. But they could do it if they wanted to. Yeah. But humans are humans. And, yeah. you know, shit happens behind the scenes with tea, with food. Um, you know, you will get changed when craft services shows up or when it's your lunch break. Um, but sometimes you don't have enough time. And also on set. Things could get caught and snagged. You don't know what kind of equipment they're using. You don't know, like, I mean, and this, and it should be like a safety walk thing with your production crew when you get on set, but sometimes you don't catch things. Or if you're doing a stunt and you're rigged, sometimes harnesses can ruin costumes sometimes. So you have to have that conversation. And this is why, like, our business is so collaborative. You have to be having those conversations with all of these different parties so that, you know, you could try to prevent all of it, but sometimes accidents happen and yeah. you have to have. And I mean, that's also another reason having, you know, just by nature, costume designers are interacting with, um, with the actors so much, but to have a good relationship with your actor builds that trust there. And yeah, you know, if, if an actor is for some, somehow goes home or accidentally grabs the wrong bag and they take home a costume or something, you know, not that that's the ideal situation. And we do do everything to prevent that, but, but it know, happens. It, stuff happens, you know, yeah. the most perfect productions always have, you know, conundrums. I think that that's part of the behind the scenes of filmmaking is problem solving. And this is what costume departments do to anticipate problems to solve is having yeah. those backups ready. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So while we're not going to go into that much detail about um, the entire Halloween franchise and series because his look does remain similar, I will talk about the fact that um, this was the first suburban slasher movie. So we're getting kids who, I guess, quote unquote, weren't asking for this evil to be placed upon them, weren't asking for this trauma. Um, you can kind of say that the kids in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they picked up a hitchhiker, which they may or may not have been, should have been doing at the time, you know, um, and they kind of stumbled in. But it's a very barren landscape. But for the first time, we're seeing a suburban neighborhood being infiltrated by this evil. And I think that's what a lot of conservatives were feeling at the end of the 70s with the rise in minority voices, the rise in feminism, the rise in gay rights that was happening at this time, all of it was just kind of like pulsating under the surface. People were getting more traction. I mean, even to this day, like feminism is not 
will never get the same amount of traction that it had in its height in the 70s. And that's really sad. Um, But there were a lot of people who thought that whether they were right or wrong, they thought that those ideals were not correct as far as the quote unquote American way of life. And, um, you know, we're, we're not, Emma and I are not here to insult anybody, but Emma and I, you know, do think the opposite. <laughs> do, do think right. that everybody's voice is valid and everybody's story should be told. Um, so when you infiltrate suburbia, you were leaving these spaces, these urban spaces, these barren spaces where crime and things could happen. And you were getting this middle class cream now. You were getting families being attacked by, I mean, the original concept from Michael Myers without the family underlying subtext, that weird family storyline that started to happen in the sequels, he was evil for no reason. And John Carpenter left it at that. And I think that that in itself is really powerful, that he doesn't need explanation. And I think that's how a lot of of the time is being viewed, that there was this underbelly I keep doing air you can't see me doing quotes but I'm doing air quotes there's there's like underbelly evils that were infiltrating this like American way of life and then in the 80s you see all of that just come to a grinding halt and all of a sudden people were being written out and people were being quieted and it was this gloss and we had a very small taste of it over the last four years but you know like it was scary that they had eight years of that in the 80s of this Americanized glossy veneer that kind of mirrored what was happening in the 50s. But now you had people that were privy to what was and what was under the surface. So it the surface cracked and cracked very easily. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It is very powerful to think about Michael Myers as the faceless, toxic, masculinity figure (laughs) yeah you know i i think that you know and not to not to generalize the character or to generalize you know because we could we could talk all day about you know (laughs) gender roles and and femininity masculinity in film but i do think that the way we look at these costumes i think does naturally begin to tell us deeper stories of those themes that are not only prevalent now, but were extremely prevalent then. Because I Absolutely. think in the past just 100 years, I mean, and maybe all of history, you know, we've been... I think the difference is, is that in the past 100 years, there's been um, a realization of what's going on. There's been yeah. an awakening for um, non-cis men uh, and and women and people who have been marginalized um have been that the, that what you mean by you know when the surface is cracked i think that is exactly what's happened and that's why naturally if you look closer to these stories those themes will come up because that is what's happening absolutely and and michael myers being this shape this faceless shape um he is sort of just a, a catch-all and it's not until Lori takes this very domestic um piece from her closet a clothing hanger um where and she pokes him in the eye is that and, and it causes him to stumble so that is the thing that is causing him this this really thin wire this domestic mm-hmm. household tool 
that's the thing that starts and and it's hitting him under the surface his eyes are the only thing besides his hands that are really vulnerable um but your hands can take a little bit more of a beating i mean they're meant as tools to to get you through the world where they're calloused in a way that you know if you touch something you 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 know you'll get burned you will hurt yourself but it's not going to hurt as much as if you get poked in the eye with something and i think that that's powerful of an image yeah, absolutely. And I think that maybe you could even say that there's a deeper meaning with using a, a, a woman using a clothing hanger to destabilize this faceless man. Yeah, I think that, you know, coming off of, you know, being in the late 70s and we're coming off of, you know, abortion being such a prevalent topic in the early 70s. I yes. think that that, you know, you could read it that way as well as as. Just that alone, like that topic, the topic of abortion and being pro-choice or being pro-life, not only extremely prevalent in the 70s, but what would easily destabilize um, many, many people that were upholding these standards. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, for sure. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm honored. <laughs> um, yeah. Then we see in... So 2018, 40th anniversary of the original Halloween, we get a new installment in the franchise where all of the sequels up to that point are kind of tossed out the window except the first movie. Um, and we and it goes back to this nameless, faceless man, this nameless, faceless killer. Um, and he is back out and he's looking for Lori. And now we see Lori 40 years later and she herself has kind of been destabilized by this life that has been bestowed upon her. I mean, she wasn't asking to be a final girl and she just happened to, to become one. Right. Um, and so from looking at her costume in the first one, this sweet babysitter shopping at JCPenney. I mean, Lori Strode in 2018 is not shopping anymore at JCPenney. She is getting something that is practical. She is getting something that is cheap so that she can put her money into her bunker. She can put her money into her firearms, her training, her her compound that she's created for herself to protect herself. And then we see her daughter played by Judy Greer. And her daughter is in Christmas sweaters and in bright colors. And she's so oppositely contrasting her mother and i and it's i think it's funny on the level that like you're either a halloween lover or a christmas lover and i find that there's not many people who i mean there's there's casual fans of both but i feel like the intense people you love one or the other oh and they each have their own fandoms they each have their own cons and their own set of movies and so we see Judy Greer in Christmas sweaters <laughs> I love on it. Halloween night. She's like totally disregarding the fact that it is Halloween. And that is just, that's awesome. And I'm so excited to see, you know, um, the next installment in that in Halloween Kills and the next one that comes out in 2022. Um, and they're, they're all designed by the same designer. Um, so that's going to be really exciting to, to see how these characters develop. Because now, I mean, at the end of, I hope everybody's seen it. Spoilers. <laughs> Spoiler. um, but, at the, but at the end of it, you know, they, they light them up and they get away. And she kind of understands why her mom is is the way that she is now. So does mm -hmm. her granddaughter. So I'm curious what the costuming choices are going to become. You know, yeah. are we going to still have those Christmas sweaters? Are they going to be disheveled? Or are we just going to start 
scratch is she gonna adopt her mother's wardrobe right i think it's a very it's a very cheeky choice to do the christmas sweaters (laughs) and i think it's not only you know being like kind of self-aware even just the juxtaposition from the color schemes um and also the uh just the fact that it is christmas sweaters does could potentially say a lot about those characters and maybe say a lot about the daughter's kind of innocence and uh, kind of being unscathed um, at that point from what is really going on with her mom. Yeah. Well, we keep talking about the 80s. So let's jump right into the 80s. Take oh, it away, yeah. Emma. Let's let's get into this. Now we're switching the decade. Reagan's elected. Reagan's elected. Let's, let's get into it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about Jason because he arguably took the 80s by storm. And I, he is 100% kind of the embodiment of what we think about. When we think about an 80s slasher, we think about Jason because he set the stage for 80s slashers. Um, obviously coming off of his, you know, his ancestors in Texas Chainsaw Massacre and in Halloween. But there's a different quality to the Jason films that I think defined more so what a horror franchise is now um, or kind of defined what, how horror franchises would eventually evolve. And so Jason goes through quite a few iterations um, in his costuming, uh, very similar to Leatherface, but I would say not in the same way Leatherface goes through iterations. Um, And so he has 12 films. There's 12 films in the Friday the 13th oh franchise. Um, maybe too many. I say keep going. Just why not? Just <laughs> keep it coming. Um, but the first one, Friday the 13th, directed by Sean Cunningham. Uh, we have Karen Copeland costume designing. Now, in the first one, we don't really see Jason besides at the end. But I did want to touch on this one because of Pamela Voorhees. Now... Ooh. I love Miss Pamela Voorhees. <laughs> and I think that um, it is worth noting her costume design. Um, a lot of people talk about how Pamela Voorhees is in that nice, bulky autumn sweater. She is an autumn fashion icon. And <laughs> she's very she's very cozy. She looks like a mother. I've always read this sweater um, on a surface level as kind of embodying that kind of motherly comfort Mm -hmm. and i always felt that you know it was intentional that she was costumed this way um to kind of showcase that kind of comfort she's kind of the sweater is very disarming you know like you don't feel threatened by that mother she looks like a mom in the 80s that is very comforting and the only thing that doesn't entirely make sense about that costume is that it doesn't make sense for the actual weather in the film. (laughs) And you're like, okay, wait, why is she so bundled up? This doesn't really make sense. Um, And it's been highly speculated that she was put in that sweater to make Betsy Palmer look a little bulkier and to look stronger and to look Mm. like she, um, she could kind of, I don't know that that there too. She looked like a mother, but that she looked like someone that could fight someone if need be, just a little bit. Um, <laughs> but that's what- a really interesting point because that's kind of like saying that 
you know, just because she's an older woman that she's not capable. Right, right. Or, you know, I know. Committing these murders, yeah. It's a very bold assumption, I think. Yeah. And um, when looking into it, Karen Copeland, the costume designer, explained that that, you know, was actually not the case because that was the <laughs> go-to explanation as to why she was in this warm sweater. Um, but it was actually because Betsy Palmer joined the cast um, about two weeks into their four-week shoot when it was actually getting colder on the shoot. And literally, she was put into the sweater just to actually keep her warm. Oh, my God. It's purely practical. I love yeah. that. So it's 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 pretty purely practical. Um, I still like to believe that there was maybe some intention in, as far as making her feel like a comforting character. I mean, I think to a degree, obviously, she was put in something that a mother would wear. And so maybe just that alone is kind of like she's supposed to look like a mom. She's yeah. supposed to confuse you. Um, but also, you know. Perhaps it's not that Pam, you know, and this is just what I like to think in my brain. Uh, perhaps it's not that she needs to look bulkier, but that the character of Pamela may be put on extra layers to think she was maybe protecting herself just mm. in case, you know. So maybe it was her choice to put those layers on if we were trying to explain why she could possibly be wearing such a warm sweater um, in warm weather. <laughs> Um, but I thought that was interesting. And I think that Pamela Voorhees is a really iconic character because she's sort of flipping the script. We we are thinking it's going to be Michael Myers. You know, we are thinking it's going to be someone that is a faceless masked man killer. And, you know, we see Pamela's legs and we see that she's in traditionally gendered, you know, male clothing as far as like um the pants and then the boots they look very heavy they, it looks like it could be someone akin to michael myers and i think that that was very smart to utilize what our perceptions as the audience are of gender roles we're projecting gender roles onto that costume alone and that's why that's so smart it always it also makes me think of um i don't know if you've seen knives out but oh, um, yes it's like because she's in the cable knit sweater and it, mm -hmm. it is cable knits are kind of they're disarming, you know, like they're mm -hmm. super comfy, cozy, these nice warm sweaters. And then, you you know, you kind of he's like like Chris Evans in, in Knives Out. He's wearing that cable knit and then he turns out not so nice either. Yeah, exactly. So it, it exactly. Yeah. I think it is, you know, even though it was practical, I do think that perhaps the style of sweater, because there's lots of ways to keep someone warm. So I yeah. do think that there was, it wasn't just like a sweater that was lying around. I think there was intention in yeah. why that sweater was chosen. And so just wanted to give a quick shout out to Pamela Voorhees, because I think she's a very smart character. Yeah. And is also arguably extremely important to the franchise. Maybe not so much as we move forward and the deeper we get into the franchise and the more sequels this film sees, we certainly maybe abandon that plot a little more. But I do think it's important to, you know, the original source material, mm -hmm. um, especially as we don't really see Jason. We see him at the end um, and we see him and we see that his face is deformed. And kind of harkening back to what we were talking about with ableism, as we move into um, Friday the 13th Part 2, uh, which came out the following year, um, 
we don't see Jason in the goalie mask yet, which is what we know the Jason costume to be. In this film, he's wearing a one-eyed burlap sack over his head, and he's wearing dark denim coveralls and a dirty plaid shirt. And the the costume itself didn't make Jason necessarily any less dangerous than, you know, as he builds, gets bulkier and has the goalie mask and looks stronger. I, I do think that the burlap sack does show some sort of a sense of vulnerability and gosh, I'm trying to think of the word. It it shows that, you know, I don't know, kind of like a ragtag sort of thing that he put on and he found. Right. And he felt that he needed to put that on. And so when you think of the question of like ableism and why they're hiding their faces, I think that the burlap sack, even though it didn't stick for his character, does kind of show that he was trying to figure out a way to work around his face. He just put it on to be practical and to cover his face. Right. I'm wondering, now that I'm thinking about now that you're talking about that, is it a form of protection or because if he's trying to scare, like if he's killing children anyway, wouldn't he want to frighten them? And I'm not saying that if you are deformed, you are frightening. I'm saying like for him, right. if he thought that he was frightening enough to put something over his face, mm-hmm. wouldn't he want to shock and awe the children that he is, you know, kind of going after? Right. That's, That's a really interesting question. And I think, yeah. that, you know, now that I think about it, I sort of, I want to say that perhaps he put on the bag, the sack on his head because he, even though he was lashing out and killing kids, that was something, it shows that that was something that he's still insecure about. He's yeah. he's not over that insecurity. And so even though he could utilize his insecurity um, to scare kids, it's something that perhaps he struggles with. And perhaps he's, perhaps he would, he would try and hide his face anyways. And I think that maybe if you were looking at it from that angle and where he's hiding it kind of for himself, um, I think that does go to show that he hasn't come to terms with that. He hasn't come to terms with um, his, his disabilities and he maybe doesn't feel safe to be that self in the world. And so he's internalizing that and Mm. he's, he hasn't kind of processed that trauma. And, um, but he knows that, you know, that that's kind of a sore spot for him. And so that's sort of, that would be my, my guess as to why he does wear it. Um, And, just kind of the raw nature of the burlap sack, I think, is interesting. Um, I don't know if they were trying to use that burlap sack as, like, seeing if that would be the Jason that stuck or if it was intentionally supposed to be just that one. Um, it does kind of give you sort of an animated scarecrow kind of vibe. <laughs> it does and with so, the plaid and the overall. Yeah. And so I, it does mm. kind of have that rustic feel to it. Um, mm. And I kind of like that in the beginning because – it does kind of show you where Jason sort of came from and, and how he evolved. And I do like to see that evolution. And so even though the goalie mask, which we'll get into in a second, ended up sticking, I like that 
we see him in the burlap uh, sack and that in the first film we do actually see his face. Yeah, it's really tactile too because you have the denim, which is rough, and you have burlap, right. which is also rough. So you have this rough on rough and he's in he's dirty. And so it is, it's very, it's very tactile, which I think is super powerful for his first like um coming into the the, the genre into the franchise. Right. Exactly. And I we've talked about this before. I think we both really love the usage of materials yeah. to characterize <laughs> someone in their costume. And I think that's super potent when it comes to not only these four, but um, horror characters in general. And yeah. I think it's a really potent topic. And to kind of showcase how rough around the edges he is compared to generally with like teens and kids that are in you know like cotton in very comfortable clothing breathable clothing breathable clothing light colors um colors that evoke the 80s you see there's like day glows and pastels and and primary colors and whites and jason is always always in like a gray tan muted dirty color palette even if his clothes aren't necessarily distressed which they do get more distressed over time but he's always in a darker color palette and so even though in part two he isn't in what we consider the classic jason costume those themes and that juxtaposition of materials and color palettes still sets him apart from his surrounding cast yeah and he he feels like the woods like a he rough does exactly yeah. and that's such an important part of his um of his arc and origin story that i would guess that it was pretty intentional um to kind of make him feel woodsy and maybe they were trying to lean into that and just ended up going a different direction um yeah. but i think in any case it is important to showcase his origin story through his costume in that way. Because to me, even though that's not how I think of Jason now, that costume does make sense. Yeah, it does. I and I enjoy that one as far as as opposed to the other. Like I like the other ones, but I do enjoy that one a lot. Mm-hmm. And another thing I read while I was mm-hmm. researching this was um, the costume designer for part two, Ellen Lutter, was actually um, made a cameo in the film as the first time we are introduced to um, adult Jason in this movie, she plays his legs. <laughs> oh my <laughs> which, gosh. Which so makes her, makes the costume designer of part two, the only woman to ever technically play Jason. That's awesome. I love that. And I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and so after part two, we see Jason come to life in Friday the 13th Part 3, coming out in 1982. Um, What's interesting about this film is this is where we see uh, the franchise, and this happens for the next consecutive films in the franchise, where there is no costume designer. And it's very interesting to see this happen so consistently with franchise films. Um, And it's also very interesting that this, you know, the first two films do have a costume designer. This film has a costume supervisor and an assistant costumer, which is almost certainly due to budget. Um, but it's interesting how, you know, it, it, it made me think about 
how did, you know, this iconic Jason costume come to life in this film when there was no costume designer to bring it to life? (laughs) Yeah. And that always also makes me wonder, like, what was the conversation in that meeting with the producers that that was the last if it feels like that was the last piece of the puzzle that was thought about and it's like, oh, okay, we don't have any more budget money, just hire a supervisor. <laughs> and like Right. It does feel <laughs> like that. And it's it's I find that very odd because I mean, like, to be fair, you know, like you had mentioned earlier, costume designers and wardrobe departments are only kind of recently beginning to get their due, especially in the horror community. And I just find it objectively odd to not consider the role of costume design in horror movies where that's everything that it's about is about the costume. You know, everything revolves around this costume and around this look. And, you know, in terms of franchises, you know, you see that that is what one of the main draws of franchises are. It's the community in the real life around the franchises, which revolves around licensed merchandise and costumes, you know, both for conventions or just for Halloween. You know, not people who are not super horror fans are still involved with these licensed merchandise and the masks and that kind of thing. And I just... It's like, okay, (laughs) the entire community revolves around these costumes from these films. And it's really interesting. And it wasn't until um, the first Austin Powers movie came out that costume designers actually got the rights to their own costumes. So when merchandise was being sold pre-first Austin Powers film, any Halloween costume that was made, any mask, any merchandise the character they created, they were not getting royalties and residuals from, which is like, think about how many characters that is. So thankfully, I mean, the costume designer from Austin Powers fought to have the rights to her own characters in, in, in conjunction with how Michael Myers, the actor, not the killer created the characters. But yeah, like that. And cause that is a, I mean, what that was like the late nineties, that movie came out like 98 or something. So not that long ago at all. Like, it's a Gen Z little royalty mm. lawsuit. Like, it's not that old. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I think that that is so important to bring up because when it comes to horror, that means that there were many people that weren't getting their dues. And it's very possible that, you know, costumers and seamstresses and wardrobe supervisors that were hired onto teams without costume designers heading it probably did more work and didn't get paid as much as they should have. And that's just speculation, but I I feel like that's probably true. Yeah. I mean, think of how many Spirit Halloweens or Hot Topics you walk into during October and how many Freddy Krueger sweaters you see. How many scream masks do you see? How many just, you know, like all of these iconic characters. And yeah. And what's what's interesting is that there is, you know – there, especially in horror, there's a very special relationship between um, wardrobe departments and special effects makeup departments. They, I, I love working with special effects artists on horror films because we get to collaborate in a really exciting way. And there's kind of things from each department that each department needs to know. There's a really close collaboration when it comes to creating these characters. Now, these films, and particularly Friday the 13th, 
um, Freddy Krueger, but we really started getting into, it wasn't just the mask. It was now like we had, they had stuff on their bodies. You know, they had like burns, they had scratches, mm-hmm. they had charred skin, you know, there was massive special effects departments. And, you know, for example, like Tom Savini worked on many of them and headed many of them. And, um, you know, and so there was a lot of really important people uh, that were involved in creating the changes and the evolutions that we see in these characters. And what I found in both Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, which I'll get into in a bit, is that oftentimes a lot of the massive changes in the costumes were headed by the special effects department. Usually it was Mm. like their skin or their face or something weird and, you know, was, was part of that big change. And, you know, as far as like changing their face, that's more prevalent with Freddy Krueger. But as far as Jason um, in part three, when it comes to the goalie mask, I was trying to figure out how did they come to the goalie mask? If there was no, if there was like pretty much not a costume department, like who had that? Like if yeah. they didn't have it before, they didn't have the groundwork to just be like, oh, that's the costume. We know it. So we don't need someone designing it. Someone had to figure this costume out. Yeah. And what I read was the goalie mask um, is actually molded from a, D- a Detroit Red Wings goalie mask that the 3D effects supervisor, Martin J. Sadoff actually just had he was like a massive hockey fan and he brought out his mask which i believe was actually his own mask from college mm-hmm. um he brought out his goalie mask to do a lighting test and they were just kind of like <laughs> what it sounds like is that him and <laughs> the director steve minor were just kind of like this would be cool <laughs> like it was really casual the way it came about and they were just like why don't we try it and they eventually molded it for the actor that played Jason and it just kind of came to life that way. And I thought that was really interesting. And also the director, Steve Miner, had previously directed um, several hockey documentaries. And so him already having the background of loving hockey, directing hockey documentaries, and then this 3D effects supervisor who just happened to be a hockey fan and have a goalie mask in his like backpack to do a lighting test completely unrelated to the character, um, I guess it just sort of clicked for them. It clicked for the director that that was the direction they were going to go. And they wrote it right into the script. And, you know, I was trying to figure out if there was like a deeper meaning to Jason having that particular goalie mask. I think that the deeper meaning for Jason is more so that he wants to cover his face. It kind of doesn't matter what he covers it with. And the goalie mask just seemed to stick for him. And so he upgraded in that film to that goalie mask. It's kind of unclear who did like the molding of it and how they developed the rest of the costume. Like Jolene had mentioned earlier, when there is not, you know, and you see this with many old films like 80s and pre-80s, um, Costume departments aren't necessarily well documented, so there's not a lot of research and uh, text on just exactly how these costumes came to be, Um, especially when it's like if there's a documentary about costume design or about horror, they reach out to people who were costume designers who were, you know, 
who were uh, credited as costume designers and they generally don't necessarily reach out to people who were wardrobe supervisors or credited as, as so. And so even though there were wardrobe supervisors on these films, they aren't necessarily reached out to to speak about their work on it. And I think that that's really a shame because they clearly had a role in that. And even if maybe the goalie mask wasn't something the costume department came up with, they created the entire look around it. And we don't really know, you know, how that came to life. And I really want to keep searching for answers around that because I, you know, it's a shame that we don't know and maybe it's selfish, but I would like to know. <laughs> I would like to know too. Yeah. So if any of the wardrobe supervisors from the third Friday the 13th are listening, um, please reach out to us. Please. <laughs> fill in those gaps for us. Exactly. So the version of Jason that we see in part three is the version that we generally see for the next couple films. Um, he's wearing like the green work shirt. He's wearing slacks. And that is the, the colors do darken throughout the films, but that's generally the structure. And so it does get darker. It does get grittier. But sprinkle that's sort some of, dirt. yeah, sprinkle some dirt on there and we get a new Jason each time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so like even the copycat killer um, in Friday the 13th, a new beginning Roy Burns um he wears a similar shirt and slacks combo, but his goalie mask um, features blue chevron markings instead of the classic red. And so Ooh. they did decide that that was like, okay, this is the groundwork for the Jason look and, you know, started to bring in little elements like that, which I really appreciated. That's awesome. Yeah. And so, you know, the next few films, we see a v variety of people in the costume departments, but pretty much never a costume designer. We see set costumer, we see assistant costumer, we see different degrees of supervisor, we see seamstresses. We don't really get a costume designer for a while, um, which is really interesting. I loved how one of them had an assistant, but not a, a designer. It was just I, an assistant costume designer, but not who I don't want. I want to know who they were assisting. That really confuses me. I, you see that a lot where it's like it's an assistant costume designer and a supervisor but then you're like, yeah, who are they assisting? Or like, I, it doesn't make sense. Or like, there was someone that was an assistant wardrobe supervisor, but then just like with a seamstress. And I'm like, I'm so confused. Like, I think the people in charge of like crediting people on these films or the producers hiring them were just like, we'll just hire whatever will save us the most money. Yeah. And they were just probably, I would assume, because you the structure is important. Like, there's a workflow in wardrobe departments. And yeah. if you don't have that, you're sort of left to fend for yourself. <laughs> you're like, who am I assisting? They're like, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Pamela Voorhees' is ghost. That's who they're assisting. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we get to New Blood. Uh, 1988, um, Kane Hodder arrives. And... The main differences we see in this is some distressing. We see him wearing chains around his neck. His costume generally just gets more wet and bloated and dirty the more stuff he goes through. <laughs> but given that he was chained to the bottom of a river, he's wearing those chains, which I appreciate that touch. <laughs> um, and so basically, he just continues to get grosser until he eventually goes to hell <laughs> And at that point, he's reborn into a possessed spirit. Love <laughs> Which, it. Which, you know, love that look for him. <laughs> and then we finally get a costume designer hired. And 
we get them in the final Friday, 1993, in Goes to Hell. And... That's it's interesting to me that they did hire a costume designer for that, but the look stays relatively the same. Um, I guess maybe they were like, let's spice it up with the other characters. You know, to me, I feel like every Jason film, a lot of the background or supporting cast, their costumes do pretty well in comparison to Jason. Once you have that Jason look down, it's easy to juxtapose it. Um, and so I find it interesting that they decided to bring a costume designer on uh, once that look was sort of already established. Um, I right. guess they established it kind of by accident. Um, and so I thought that that was interesting. But really where things begin to take a turn is about a decade after the final Friday, we get Jason X. <laughs> I have a lot to say about Jason X, but I won't say it all on this episode. Um <laughs> It's 2001, and it feels like 2001. It feels like <laughs> basically Star Trek in 2001, and it's ridiculous. Um, that film is, it's kind of like probably the biggest way you could uh, subvert from the original story. <laughs> but I'm like, you know what? Why not? Let's put him in space. Why not? And Why not? And so you do see that that costume is rooted in the original look but future jason is wearing like bullet riddled coveralls like a tattered jacket he's just been through a lot because he's in space now <laughs> yeah and <laughs> <laughs> he's a world traveler yeah and so he also has like a chain like a collared chain that sort of does mimic that chain that he had before um but the big takeaway from jason x on the costuming front um which jason x did have a costume designer maxine baker um, is we're introduced to Uber Jason, who, <laughs> thanks to nanotechnology, it's basically the craziest look Jason has ever worn. <laughs> and is we're we're finally moving away from the goalie mask and we're getting a cyber like enhanced sleek metal mask. And he looks like basically like a bulky, scary robot, which I appreciate. <laughs> And um, it's really chaotic and we don't really see Uber Jason ever again outside of Jason X, which, you know, I think Jason X is a really funny one-off film. <laughs> and I love that they were like, you know, we've solidified Jason. Let's just go crazy with Uber Jason. Just, you know, to be crazy in that film anyways. And the costume design in that film is actually extremely fun with the supporting cast. The mm. production design and the costume design in Jason X are very bright. They're very colorful, extremely 2001 and all very cohesive. I think it's probably my favorite backdrop as far as colors to the dark, crazy Jason, you know, <laughs> especially Uber Jason, who's very like, like metallic and, and he's, he's wearing black and silver and, you just get this like extremely brightly colored cast. And I think the costuming in that one is probably the most fun. I think they were able to just sort of go ham on it. And I can appreciate the camp that I see in Jason X. <laughs> Early 2000s horror movies are very interesting just in general. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Like, there was a lot of fashion things that I look back on that I had that are totally impractical that I would never partake in again, like the whole low-rise jean 
fad? Oh, how yeah. Do you, how did we accomplish things in those low-rise jeans? So, yeah, I think Jason <laughs> X is like a perfect like time capsule of 2001. Completely agree. Because I, I do think that they really leaned into that. And they also were able to do this sort of like two, early 2000s Y2K futurism thing. Yeah, exactly. And so, again, it's like, with that, the zeitgeist, I feel like it was inevitable that they would put Jason in space. And in some way, shape, or form, I think a film like this would have happened. I'm just happy that it was as chaotic of a choice as putting Jason in space. <laughs> um, but yeah, visually, like, I think it's a really fun one where the costumes are very much like, they're basically a heightened sense of all the trends um, of the early 2000s. You know, you have like, really tiny little tops, really crazy patterns. You're playing with, you know, like fuzzy f materials and crochet and satin and all of the really like fun, maybe chaotic materials that we saw in a lot of um, early 2000s fashion and costuming. And so it almost reminded me of like if Clueless went to space, <laughs> like it was that kind of like heightened <laughs> sense of style, but oh in space. Gosh. It's like... Gosh, I wish I wanted I want to see a Jason in space that Mona May has costumed. Oh my god, that would be amazing. <laughs> I think that would be fantastic. At Romy least from Michelle the meet Jason in space. That is literally what like felt like what Jason X was going to lead to. <laughs> I was like they're going to keep going and just go in on the early 2000s like and invent post-its together with Jason yeah. and <laughs> Exactly. It's like I really have nothing profound to say about Jason X other than I think it's chaotic yeah. and I love it. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, I think that the, I think you could say that about a lot of early 2000s horror film, like nothing Absolutely. profound to say. It's a good time with a bunch of really hot people running around with their belly rings out like yeah. that. They're yeah. just being hot, wearing a bunch of colors. <laughs> That's really all Jason X is. Um <laughs> but after Jason X, we get another early 2000s Jason movie. Um, we get Freddy versus Jason, the highly anticipated crossover. I love this movie. It is definitely one of my favorites. I'm so glad that you love it because I, I think it's really fun too. I think that from a costume design perspective, um, and I'll mention more about this later, I do think I like Freddy's costuming in that film more. I feel like they didn't do too much to change the look of Jason. Yeah. Um, you do get kind of like, you get the look that does define the modern Jason, the bulkier Jason, and you do see it in um, the later reboot, a decade later, um, where it's pretty much the same thing where it's his look, but it's bulkier and he's wearing like the tattered jacket. He's wearing more layers and the mask was shaped slightly differently and it did resemble the Jason X pre Uber mask than it did <laughs> the other film masks. And so you get basically like, Jason X in space, but not Uber Jason is more of the influence. So they're kind of diverting from the, the goalie mask a little bit here, but not too much. Um, and this is costume designed by Gregory Ma. Um, I was happy to see that a lot of the people who worked on these films, including the people who weren't just costume designers, did eventually continue to costume design. Um, and are a lot of them are still working today. Yes. And I love to see that. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, we love to see a nice bulky resume. Yeah, exactly. And so as far as, you know, Jason's costumes, 
I think that ultimately this is a really good example of he goes through a lot of iterations, but unlike Leatherface, a lot of them are more practical iterations. A lot of the changes you see are because of like he has to be dirtier because this thing happened, you know, versus things that are maybe a little more symbolic. Um, I don't see a lot of symbolism in Jason's costumes. Uh, they are quite practical other than just the fact that he is masked and that that right. makes sense for his story. And I think that they sort of knew that and leaned into that. But I also think that, you know, I would have loved to see if, if, the wardrobe departments were maybe funded better or staffed better what they could do within their means. Cause I think they did a great job given, you know, the limited amount of resources that they probably had. Um, but, you know, I really think that the creativity of the wardrobe departments did shine even more because of how small they were. And I think that yeah. that's really impressive. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, again, yeah. So we have 80s, this faceless killer, another, you know, like going back to we can't form empathy with the faceless killer. Right. Yeah, like you said, there's there's not a ton of symbolism in his costume. It is all practical. Um, the, yeah, what I, what I think of when I think of these movies is the kids. I think of like yeah. them being – teens we see a lot of mom jeans in the first few films because it's the 80s lots of like acid wash denim lots of pastels lots of like um you know just bright colors cheeky colors mm -hmm. we have crispin glover doing that nice dance for us <laughs> thank you crispin <laughs> oh my god what a chaos i feel like that film specifically is yeah. one of the more chaotic films in it the is. franchise aside from i don't even i feel like i don't even consider jason x like a part of the original story no. like at all no. but like as far as like the original group of films yeah that one's an interesting one <laughs> yeah we're one year away from him doing back to the future and doing like almost the same dance in the dance scene when he's waiting for marty to show up with lorraine yeah <laughs> but like yeah, just not exactly. as intensely yeah Lots of denim. Yeah, lots of, yeah, cottons. It's, mm -hmm. It is very, it is a very textual piece, you know, like, yeah, I'm thinking absolutely. about how you're speaking about the first one where Pamela is, when we don't know it's Pamela, is shown wearing very masculine pieces, but also like how we genderize texture, you know, like the rougher textures on the trousers, rougher textures, um, you know, on the sleeves and stuff Bulkiness like that. And, and darkness. And you associate that with, with what you believe men should be wearing. Yeah. And I think that that really comes through um, in this film. And also, this is where we're really seeing what teen horror costuming looks like. It really started with Friday the 13th. We're seeing their, the things that the teens are wearing are very much like comfortable they feel very real they're leaning into the trends of the time and they like you said it is extremely textural i feel like that's the biggest difference aside from the color palette is we are seeing that the teens are able to move more freely they feel like they have independence they are having fun with their style things that jason doesn't necessarily have and is perhaps jealous of
So speaking of teen 80s horror, there is only one person to be Jason's match, and that is Mr. Freddy Krueger. Now, I'm obsessed with this franchise. I am too. Yeah, this, <laughs> this is, is my favorite. This is literally one of my favorites. Even though I like to probably analyze Leatherface the most, I do think that this is my favorite franchise for, I guess, probably just sentimental reasons. Yeah. I don't know. I just I like it. <laughs> Maybe because he speaks. And he's got all these one-liners. Yeah. And so he's the one that has the most personality out of all of these killers, I think. Yeah. I have very fond memories of um, a couple summers ago, uh, Hannah, my um, best friend and co-founder at Monster Sem Films, uh, her and her partner, Carlo, um, and Alex and I, we spent the entire summer just like binge watching Nightmare on Elm Street. And it was so fun. And I remember that Halloween, Carlo had said that he had carved a pumpkin for me. And I'm like, oh, what does that mean? And I went over to their house and he had carved the it's primetime bitch scene into a pumpkin. And I was like, you have no idea what this means to this me. Was the, this was the, the um, birthday card that Jen got me for my birthday this year. <gasps> oh, for, uh, for our listeners, it is um, Jen is my best friend. Um, and she got me. It's a cartoon of Freddy Krueger popping through the TV saying it's a prime time to celebrate. And then it's got her, her legs <laughs> hanging on the inside of the card. <laughs> Oh, my God. That's, I think, maybe my favorite scene in franchise history. And you know what? <laughs> Halloween Horror Nights loves that scene. Every time they do it at Hollywood or Universal Studios in Orlando, the TV is somewhere in the Nightmare on Elm Street house. They love that scene. I'm so glad. <laughs> now, Nightmare on Elm Street is just, it's so inventive. And, you know, we could do a whole segment just about how great the special effects are because I think they're so unique to um to this franchise and also like important for people who do practical effects like this is sort of the textbook um but something i love about freddy krueger's look is that he he does pretty much remain the same and i think his costume is absurd <laughs> and i love it and i think what this is sort of where the conundrum of like fans wanting uh, you know, horror villains to wear the same thing all the time. For me, Freddy Krueger is that person. I don't want to see him in anything but that really ugly fedora and the fabulous yeah. striped sweater. Like, that's him. And, you know, he doesn't have... He, I feel like, is a really interesting balance between having kind of a, you know, deeper backstory, um, lots of things you could interpret on top of the kind of uh, thing that Friday the 13th had with Jason where you're like, this is just a chaotic horror character. I think it's a really interesting okay. balance. And I think that that's what draws me to this franchise. So the first one, Nightmare on Elm Street, directed by Wes Craven, 1984. Uh, the costume designer, Dana Lyman, actually also costume designed um, another one of my favorite films, The Exorcist 3, yes. which I thought was really fabulous. So both great movies, in my opinion. And... The difference between this and perhaps Jason is that we are basically introduced to Freddy in the look that we see him in for most of the franchise. The changes that happen with Freddy are not massive when it comes to his costume. So in the first one, he's basically fully formed. He's wearing the fedora. He's wearing brown pants. He's wearing boots. And he's wearing the red and green striped sweater. 
except that the sleeves are actually just red and not striped. And so, and he has, you know, he has a signature bladed glove. He has his pizza looking burnt skin. It's pretty much the iconic look, um, which, you know, other franchises maybe take a little longer to land on. I think Jason probably took the longest to land on yeah. his look. Um, the other ones, I do feel like kind of got it from the get-go. But Freddy, I think, was the most consistent. Um, maybe next to Michael Myers, because, yeah. I mean, that's a very specific yeah. look. But Freddy's look is, I think, a little more intricate. Um and so we see this go through a couple iterations um, in Freddy's Revenge, which we could literally do an entire episode just on Freddy's <laughs> oh my Revenge. Gosh, yeah. I have so much to say about Freddy's Revenge, but when it comes to Freddy's costume, um, they a lot of the changes, again, really came from the special effects department. They gave him a hooked nose. They kind of made his eyes look a little more demonic. He had more prominent burns and and it was more full body and not just on his face. And this was the film where the costume did add the stripes to his sweater on the sleeves. Um, his pants got darker and now the blades are attached to his hands and not just a glove. So I do love yeah. that choice. <laughs> um, with Freddy's revenge, I do think that, you know, we're seeing a lot of, classic teen costuming i love actually probably out of all of these films especially in terms of like 80s teen costuming and what 80s teens were wearing this is my favorite mm -hmm. one because they kind of they lean into tropes very heavily in this one they lean into trends you kind of have like the uh the more badass friend kind of in a more goth look and you know everyone's very much into their character and you can see that in the costuming in this one I think maybe more than the other ones that just kind of have a very generalized look for their teen characters I I definitely um you could definitely see the change very prominently from the first to the second because I mean that's when Wes Craven was no longer involved because he did have right. to sell the rights to the movie to get it made. So New Line Cinema, Bob Shea, now owned the rights to Freddy Krueger, Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and he isn't actually in the first movie for very long. Like, we remember him being in that movie for much longer. But I think his running screen time is, like, maybe 13 minutes in total, like, in the whole hour and a half. Right. Very yeah, short. Yeah, but he's yeah. much more... Um, goopier looking like his face looks a lot more moist yes. in the first one um he's he's lit very gritty and seedy and then in the second one and then in subsequent sequels he's a lot brighter and his skin looks drier like it doesn't look as gloppy <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's it's very interesting how there's you know between the costume department and the special effects team there's so many subtle changes yeah. that are made because objectively you could say like yeah, that's like a bit of a change, but like, why was that change made? And, you know, those teams have to take into consideration. I think that everyone always wants to put a little bit of a spin on it when it comes to a Absolutely, new film yeah. and a franchise. But also, what's the tone of the film? What are they trying to achieve with this right. character? The more, you know, when it comes to a franchise specifically, the more you get to know a character that was birthed in, you know, it's not like, it's not like it's based on comic books. It was the source material was, you know, like a year prior to the second movie. And so they're still getting to know this character 
And that's why you see these little subtle changes because they're we're watching the team build the character every single time. And I think especially with the second one, because that's when you got into the whole, I mean, it came out in the 80s when just homosexuality was not talked about. And then you have this film where the entire piece is just like laced with gay undertones and having the whole production staff being like, we didn't know that this was in the film. And then when you watch the Scream Queens documentary with Mark and he's like, how did you not know that none of this was in the film? I could have told you that this was in the film, you know, like it. And that one was definitely more, more bright, more camp, more. Yeah, absolutely. They really leaned into a lot of different things. I mean, and I think you can absolutely tell the context through the costuming for Mm -hmm. sure. When it comes to like teen boys in the 80s, I do think a lot of that a lot of that dress with like crop tops and tight pants, like you could say that that was very metrosexual. You know, you could say that that was very fluid and, and you know, I think that people maybe could make assumptions from that, but also a lot of those were genuinely the yeah. trends. But I think where like you see them telling a bit more of a story and a bit more of a narrative through the costuming is with the gym teacher and with that sequence in that gay club. Yeah, it was a yeah. gay club. It was 100% a gay <laughs> club. And <laughs> they were, you know, or at the very least, a kink yeah. club, you know, BDSM. They're wearing like leather chains and just seeing that, it's so, it's so clear that it's not just like, oh, we're just in a club. It's that all, all of those costumes are telling us that sexuality right. is the theme here that we're wrestling yeah. with. As opposed to Glenn, played by Johnny Depp in the first film, where he's seen in that wonderful male crop top, but it's already established oh, yes. that he's the jock. He's dating Nancy, and that is the only exactly. time that he's seen in that costume. It's not in our face as much as the, you know. Right. Right, exactly. And yeah, that's a perfect example of like how that was just a trend, but there's many other ways to utilize that costuming and other costumes around that to to kind of tell you what's going on. And so that's Freddy's Revenge, I think, is a fabulous movie. I do love Freddy's Revenge. And I think the more I'm thinking about it, I just love all of them because (laughs) I was like, wait, but Dream Warriors was my favorite. And then no, Freddy's dead. And they're all, I think, just they really are. fantastic. But Freddy's Revenge is definitely my favorite to dive mm-hmm. into because we have a final yeah. boy, which we didn't no. have before. And I think that that is something that just goes to show that this franchise was willing to break the, maybe not necessarily the structure, but what was expected of the yeah. structure. And I think within the last few years and since Mark has made that Scream Queens documentary, which is available on Shutter. It's getting a new look at and it's getting the reclamation that it deserved, that it should have gotten when it first came out. Exactly. Because I will admit when and I was a that, teen, yeah. like watching all of these movies, I think I skipped the second one so many times because I was like, well, I, I don't like this one. Like there's no Nancy, there's no final girl. And I watched it a few times, but now that I'm older, I'm definitely coming back to it and finding things that I didn't. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I think that that just goes to show how much 
we can reclaim our own narratives with yeah. horror. And I think that that's why, you know, there's this mix right now in the horror community of really loving nostalgia and older films, but being able to, you know, with new films, spin those narratives into something new, like Freaky, mm. you know, which was one of my favorite releases from last year that takes the slasher genre, kind of spins it on its head, but we still love the slasher genre. We're just reclaiming the stories that were told or like Freddy's Revenge are shedding light on the stories that were actually being yeah. told. It was interesting. I was listening to um, the newest episode of Faculty of Horror today and um, Alex was talking about, you know, how we could like things that are a little cringy sometimes and, and we can absolutely love things and movies that might be a bit problematic, but recognizing that those things might be there, but then, you know, still loving them at the, in the same way, you know, like recognizing that some of this stuff is probably not okay. It's okay to still like it, but let's be critical about it and let's look at it, that we can be critical of things and love them at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so Freddie's costume after this only has a couple changes. And so in Dream Warriors, um, which was costumed by Camille Morris, who was actually the wardrobe supervisor on Friday the 13th New Beginnings, <laughs> which was like two years prior to this. Um, and so we see her finally getting her due as a costume designer. Yay. <laughs> that is pretty consistent in the costuming. Um, but again, we do see a little bit more of the special effects side where we see um, it's the first time we see Freddy shirtless and he has a stomach full of yeah. souls as he should, which I love. And I think that that looked fabulous. And if any of our <laughs> listeners live in New York, um, the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens has that sweater and that chest plate on display. So you can oh totally my God. Go see it. It's, it's really cool. It's like six-ish feet across like it's huge this thing yeah oh, I love that and again it's like just that piece alone beautiful collaboration between yeah. special effects artists and costume designers and so dream master comes along Freddie has been resurrected and his only difference really is that his glove is just like a little lighter which again it's like that's such a subtle difference but they felt it was right yeah. and they felt that that was enough to update the look or you know and whether they were just trying to update the look or move his story along and build his character I don't mm. know but it could go either way so dream child comes along also pretty consistent but then we get to a really interesting one in 1991 Freddy's Dead the Final <laughs> Nightmare comes out and I love this film and I also just want to like point out that it was directed by someone that I'm really obsessed with. Um, it was directed by a Jewish woman named Rachel Talalay. And I don't think people talk enough about mm -hmm. her. She's the only woman to direct um, a nightmare film. And she also produced a lot of the previous yes. ones. Um, she's very, very cool. She directed a ton of Doctor Who episodes in Peter Capaldi's season that I'm obsessed with. I'm sorry. I'm an absolute nerd. Um, she also produced a handful of John Waters films. And so I'm kind of like, I feel like maybe she's me from the future, time traveling back to do what she right. wanted to do. But she directed Freddy's Dead and I'm obsessed with her. Anyways. <laughs> so Nan Rose, uh, Nan, hold on. What was her name? Rachel. 
Rachel, right, Rachel directed. Okay, Nan Rose. Okay, okay. <laughs> Nan Rose Buckman costumed Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. And what's really fun about this is that we see Freddy go back in his memories and we see him as a child and as a teen and as an adult human. Uh, and then, of course, as the Freddy we know and love. I really like the costuming that they did with the different iterations of Freddy throughout his life. Um, we're getting to see some dimension in the costuming and in the story that we haven't really seen before. Up until this point, you know, besides these subtle little changes, the costumes have been pretty much the same. But what I like that they did here is that they leaned into that red green color story throughout all of these costumes. And so as a child, he's wearing this red sweater vest and mainly red and then he's wearing like a tiny striped green t-shirt underneath um when he's a teen he's wearing kind of this more olive uh beige button-up and with a white t-shirt underneath and then as an adult he's wearing a green button-down bowling shirt and he has just a little bit of red peeking out from underneath the bowling shirt now i am known to be obsessed with color stories and look very, very, very far into them if I can do so. And so that is exactly what I do here with these costumes. So I feel like there is some symbolism in the costuming as far as the color schemes, at least with maybe not up until this point, but with this movie, I feel like they were trying to be as intentional as possible and weren't necessarily just doing it because, oh, those are Freddy's colors. I do feel like there is something up with them. I noticed in Teenage Freddy, red is not very prevalent at all. You can kind of see a very, very faint red on the um, the beige button-up, but it's not super, super present. Frankly, the button-up's not even very green. But when he's a kid, his dress is kind of primarily red with the touch of green and as an adult it's the opposite it's green with the touch of red now that could mean almost anything we want it to mean but i like to think about it from the lens of freddie's innocence what really made me think about this is his teenage costume i was kind of feeling like the red represented him as a child it represented his true self, his innocence, he was sort of, at that point, didn't understand the trauma he had been going through and maybe was a little more unscathed from it at that point. As a teenager, he sort of loses that red almost entirely. And he's not really him himself. I feel like at that point, he's maybe the most troubled mentally or so, or so he thinks. From his perception, he's now dealing with all this fresh trauma and... We see him, spoiler alert, uh, murder <laughs> um, <laughs> his adoptive father, played by Alice Cooper, of all people. <laughs> which is a um, great cameo. I love this. Which they is, have so many great cameos in that one. Cameo. They really do. I, I really love – Freddy's Dead is, I think, very special. Um, but we just don't see a lot of that red anymore. He's lost it. He's lost who he was before. And – I found that he kind of evolved from that beigey green into a slightly stronger green as an adult. And he still had, he had that peak of red back and it kind of got me thinking about how perhaps he was starting to come into himself again, but in kind of a messed mm. up way. So 
he was now conflating who he is, the red. He was conflating who he is with his trauma. It was starting to blend together. And so my take is that when we see him with the balanced striped sweater, we're seeing him equally conflate who he is, who he believes he is with his trauma. And we're seeing him. That's why we're seeing him act out because he has now become it. And so this all could be a stretch, but I love color stories. And I really think that whether all of that is exactly the intent of these color stories, I do feel like I really appreciated how intentional they were with the placement of the colors. You can clearly see the red when he's a kid. It's really faded when he's a teen. You can clearly see the green when he's an adult. And then you have that perfect balanced striped Mm. sweater. And so I just think there's something to be said about that. I don't know. What do you think, Joe? Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would definitely agree with that as far as like the two sides of himself conflicting, because then we also have this added element of him having a daughter Right. So we see his daughter in these flashbacks and there's a a child innocence to the daughter where maybe now that he is a father, he is trying to reclaim some of that innocence and he doesn't want to be this person. But the trauma is trumping all of those those good feelings and stuff. And I I love that. And I love how bold all of his looks are and how he they pair him so well with not just Nancy, but our other final girls like Alice and just the other kids like Kincaid and all these guys. Like they just they all just look so well together. Um, with yeah, very, very cohesive. cohesive, and they're softer and they're like again with the texture. So he has this like really rough sweater, right? And he's in a boiler. Mm-hmm. Looks very itchy. Yeah, very itchy. Those those pants are like probably a Dockers where you can kind of like rub your nails on them, you know, it'd be like yeah, like yeah. A work yeah very textured. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, I when I was reading um Never Sleep Again, which is the a book written about the making of the first movie and then it was developed into like a four hour long documentary about all of the films, like the whole franchise together, which is pretty incredible watch if you have like an afternoon. And yeah, um, a lot of the costume people from the first movie said that the sleepwear was, you know, the the virginal white sleepwear that was in contrast with Freddy Krueger was almost like Nancy's armor being put on. So she would be go put on her armor to go into battle for the evening, this like white, comfortable, cotton, breathable. And I, I also just find sleepwear and horror very interesting. And the fact that they chose to put her in a pants set, not a nightgown, which we see Allison. Mm -hmm. We see, um, gosh, what's her name? Um, the, the, uh, the dream warrior, um, Araquette. Oh, the Patricia Arquette character. Yeah, Yeah. so she's in a nightgown, and so in the subsequent films, they are the the women are in nightgowns, and it's kind of the mm -hmm. go to. And Nancy's the only one in that pants set, that like capri pants set. So Mm -hmm. I think that's also just an interesting and florals. Florals are used a lot. There's a lot of floral motifs used with the women a lot too. Mm -hmm. Really nice. Um, Yeah, yeah. So it's just it's a really nice contrast. I think they do a really great job. Um, maybe because I just I'm so in love with this whole franchise, the 
crazy like backstory that they give him about being a dad and all this mm-hmm. stuff. I totally believe, but like, I'm like, yeah, yeah but like Leatherface and Michael Myers, I'm like, that's really far fetched. But like Freddy Krueger, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I believe that's- you. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I, I completely agree with um, what you said in terms of like a lot of our final girls. Um, I what you see a lot, especially in the 80s, is that they do really lean into that high femme florals, baby blues, baby yeah. pinks, white, virginal, pure, all of this very Ruffles. innocent, childlike yeah. stuff. Yeah. And to the point where it could almost be creepy, I, I also think that it it makes me think a lot about um, the costuming in Rosemary's Baby, um, which I think that was what, 1968, 1969, yeah. um, where they also utilize all of those colors and that kind of different structures because different yeah. time period. But you see a lot of those light colors being symbolic mm-hmm. of what Rosemary is going through, but also to symbolize her innocence in a very direct way to the storyline. And I think you see that with a lot of the final girls because, you know, and we can get into like the nitty gritty of final girls um, on another episode, but just to kind of touch on it, I think that it's very final girls in the eighties were, that was when the trope truly was created because now they're, now they're virginal. Now they're pure. They're supposed to be the innocent ones. You know, we see them with their like kind of edgy best friends that get killed first. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, or they they have a they have a jokester friend that's gonna get cut really soon, but they're gonna make it because they're innocent and they're smart and they're good. And it's kind of like you know you won't be punished if you're right. good. <laughs> and that comes through in the costuming, very strong. Yeah. And that's almost like 100% consistent with all the final girls. They're going to have a nightgown. They're going to have the, the light colors. Um, it's really not many, especially mm-hmm. in this franchise, that stray from that. Really, the only thing we do see stray from that is Nancy's pants. Yeah, and even just the other pure characters, like when we get introduced to Amanda Kruger, who's supposed to be his mother, um, yeah. who is a nun, which the traditional nun's habit is black and white, she's in an all-white habit. And even though mm-hmm. – because and, beca- and I think because she has been raped as opposed to, you know, giving up her virginity herself – we can, mm-hmm. she's allowed to stay in the white. She's allowed to stay in that purity because as a nun, you're supposed to be kept chaste and pure. Exactly. Um, and that reminds me a lot of the nun habits in The Devils mm. from 1972 because they are also in yeah. all white with this, with this black cross in the front. And that is all about, that film explores female sexuality and, and innocence and liberation and purity and all those yeah. good themes um, and you can see that very clearly in that very intentional costume. Yeah. So I wonder if that was, you know, the choice to do the all white nun habit was a callback to the devils. But in any case, I think it was for a similar reason of exploring those yeah. themes. Yeah, I don't know. I, that would be something interesting to look into because I know. So I, I went to Catholic school growing up and but mm. I also I've designed Nonsense, which is a, a comedy musical um, for the stage. And in researching habits and, and nuns wear, 
all white was traditional throughout medieval times up until about the 1800s. And then you started to see the black and white, you know, garb come in. You get it. Um, it I think some orders will wear the all white, like in the Sally Fields show, The Flying Nun, you see them in all white. That's very traditional. But for the most part, the mm-hmm. modernized nun is black and white. So it's very interesting. Um the use of color in these films. And it's very distinct because it's the 80s. It's filmed on 35 millimeter. So the color is bright. You're going to see all of these details. I mean, oh, gosh. And nothing beats his one-liner. And Freddy gets a cute little chef's coat in the film one when he's stuffing Gretchen's face. He gets, <laughs> and he, he, gets, he gets a little chef's coat. What's better than that? Tie. It's a little red and green striped bow tie. <laughs> it's adorable. Oh, just my I... It's a really good franchise. And in the 90s, they so the 90s is when they came yes. back with Wes Craven's new yes, night, which is he and, came back finally to do this. Yes. And this was funny because in New Nightmare, <laughs> they're basically like, just kidding. You don't know Freddy Krueger. He wasn't right. real. Right. <laughs> and then we're hypothetically introduced to the real Freddy. And this Freddy is very similar, but he just looks a little more demonic, I would say. You know, he's a little more like his, he looks like his skin just melted off, kind of gives me like Hellraiser vibes. And um, one of my favorite uh, parts of this costume actually is that instead of the glove, the bladed glove, it's literally his like bones and tendons, like with blades attached. Yeah. And I think it looks bad. Yeah, with that duster coat, he looks incredible. Oh, yeah. And so, he, yeah, right. So he has the duster coat and he also has the fedora, but the fedora is green. And I was like, this is kind of, it sort of got me thinking about how they made a little bit more of an effort in this one to change Freddy's look ever so slightly. Um, they made more like distinct costume additions mm-hmm. or, or shifts with the hat. And it kind of made me think about how it sort of reminds me that how movies will base a character or story around an existing person or creature, and they'll generally interpret how the real life character looked. And so hypothetically, you know, the previous movies in this universe were designed by a costume designer that interpreted this Freddy. And so the idea is like those costume designers saw the green hat and the trench coat and said, for the movie adaption, we'll change it. We'll have the regular fedora and just the sweater. And I don't know. I kind of liked that thinking about how that could be, you know, it's just a fun way to look yeah. at it of like how deep the universe could go and just how that's kind of how things happen in real life. And the idea of giving him these very subtle changes, you know, the difference between real life Freddy and movie yeah. Freddy. I love A New Nightmare. I think it's a brilliant film and I think it doesn't get as much credit as it should um, because probably of when it came out, you can definitely see Wes Craven f- laying the foundation work for Scream because this is a meta film. This is about not Nancy as a Nancy as a character, but Heather Langenkamp as a person and how she was actually really right. stalked in real life. And so they put that into the film as well. And she is talking to Robert Unglund. She's talking to John Saxton. And she's talking about her time doing this movie and how, you know, even though she is the hero of the movie, we remember Freddie mm-hmm. above all else. 
Yeah. So I I think it's a great film. I I love it. It's a very smart smart. I think that it's definitely like, I think a lot of people love it. A lot of people question the choice to be like, just kidding. Freddy's not real, but he is real. Um, I think it was really smart. I think it was really well done. And the costume changes were subtle enough to, I think, sell the world that, you know, this is the real Freddy and that the others were just interpretations. And I liked how subtle it was because, you know, it was, it's funny. It was subtle, but compared to the other changes throughout the sequels, it was probably the most stark change in the costume. Yeah. Aside from like child or teen Freddy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and I think on a symbolic level, that's probably how, I mean, I'm not Wes Craven and I'm not, I don't, I never knew him, but I, I'm wondering if that is how he felt because he had to give up this, you know, this property of his that he created and then he's watching it divulge throughout the entire eighties. And then it's almost, you know, his reclamation of this of like, yeah, okay, I started this, but like, all right, let me, let me take it to where I want to go with it now. Cause this is my story. Yeah. So absolutely. I would, I would guess so, because I mean, that does kind of seem like what it is. It's kind of like those, those Freddies aren't right. my Freddy and we're going, we're going back to my yeah. Freddy kind of, and, and maybe, uh, you know, the vision that, that he had, but you know, also, I guess you could say that maybe if he, was to have continued throughout the 80s and have that ability to just continue to do the films. Maybe that's not the direction any of this would go. I think that this film is a result right. of, you know, him not being a part of it. But I think that it kind of worked out well for everyone because we got a lot of varying, you know, Freddy films. And then we also got this one, which is a result of having all those Absolutely, Freddy films. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not going to go into the recent reboot, but there is, of course... Freddy versus Jason, which we got in 2003. And again, love this film. Costume designed by Gregory Ma. We're basically shown, you know, again, it's kind of like a grittier, grittier Freddy Krueger, like we see in many modern reboots or revisits. And the only real major difference here is that we're actually getting another version of human Freddy. And in this rendition, Instead of the, you know, green bowling shirt and the red, we're seeing adult Freddy in um, basically almost an entirely brown look. Uh, He's wearing this, like, big brown coat, brown boots. And you could kind of argue that it doesn't really feel a lot like Freddy Krueger, but something about it I like. Um, And it definitely, like, it does stray. It strays from what we know Freddy Krueger to be. It strays from the color stories we associate with him. But, you know, it's just basically less symbolic costuming. And I think that that's fine. And I think it worked for this film. And, you know, it's not my favorite choice, but I think it was interesting to see him in a different look. And also, I think it just looked good on Robert England. He he looks good in everything, in anything. Like even in he does. his he's other just cool. Work, I mean, he's <laughs> such a brilliant actor. I mean, come on, this guy is Shakespearean trained. He is just such a brilliant. Oh yeah, he could do anything. That like, I I remember seeing him for the first time, not as Freddy Krueger in something, thinking that I I was like a little afraid because I was like, oh gosh, am I going to see him as Freddy Krueger? Because I do really love him, and I 
saw him completely as that character. I yes, I was looking at Robert Englund's face, but I mean, I never, I never once thought, oh gosh, this is Freddy Krueger in this role. Like he was a completely different character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's extremely versatile, yeah. and so <clears throat> the other thing that is fun about uh, Freddy Krueger is that he actually kind of pulls a Pamela Voorhees moment, and he wears a red Pam sweater and. <laughs> I just thought that was so fun because I'm like, both of them are sweater icons and (laughs) I just, I just thought it was a really fun choice for that to, that whole sequence to play out, but to see Freddy Krueger in such a different look that also kind of harkens to not only Pam's history with the sweaters, but Freddy's history with the sweaters and especially the choice of just the red was, I think, really good. Yeah. And, you know, and again, this was an early 2000s film, so all of our teens are in gap jeans and the baby doll oh, yeah. tops and we're layering two tank tops because that's what we did then very cool <laughs> and all of this <laughs> stuff. actually the kid in the bathtub the brother that has died that comes back to haunt the the other brother the, the redhead brother in the bathtub that okay. is scott farkas from a christmas story oh my <laughs> like god yeah. no way that's freaky yeah. that's wild and what's funny about uh, Freddy versus Jason is that it's definitely extremely early 2000s but not in the way that like Jason no. X is where it's like hyper camp yeah. and which we almost see you know m- more of a touch of in Freddy's Dead where you're seeing that like strong color stories read camp to me almost yes. always if it's an extremely strong color story it's going to be campy and I eat that up so I'm like <laughs> I'm, I'm going to gravitate yeah. towards that but also you can do you know, period clothing, or for them, it wasn't period clothing because it's just what right. they were wearing. But looking back on it, they both still feel like a time oh, capsule, just 100%. in different ways. And that was definitely the era of like, if it's a horror movie, we're putting heavy metal music on the opening credits to let you know. That oh this yeah, is a hard movie. <laughs> yeah, we're scary right. metal, Satanism, <laughs> exactly, very scary. And so, in Freddy versus Jason, they didn't again. They didn't do too too much to change his look. Of course, they added some you know embellishments with the special effects just tried to make him look creepier and grosser and like more like a demon a little rougher around the edges as you do um so that's basically his whole evolution um and we got a really interesting question on twitter when we asked you guys uh if you had any questions for us about the gruesome foursome and peter asked about um if we thought that freddie's sweater or his hat would be just as iconic if it was just one clothing item or as opposed to doing both. And so he also asked just kind of like in a wider sense, what's the importance of a complete ensemble compared to the individual costume pieces? Um, And I think this is a great question because it's kind of, uh, you have to think about the process of designing a costume. And I think especially in the context of horror franchises and in the context of like Nightmare on Elm Street, I think that if it was just one or the other, it probably would still be iconic if they ran with it. But there is a degree of going over the top when it comes to horror franchises, especially with Nightmare on Elm Street. It's a really inventive, fun franchise. It doesn't, I don't think it takes itself as seriously as any of the other three. Um, and it's, it's able to kind of play into things that feel absolutely absurd. And like, I 
do think it's an absurd combination, that fedora and the sweater. And there is something to be said about you kind of have to make those bold design choices to create an iconic character. And I think that this is maybe a case of that. Um, So I don't know. What do you think, Jolene, about that? Yeah, so I've been ruminating on this question like all afternoon. And I was originally going to go with, I don't know. Like, I think you could have one, like, piece as, like, a staple piece. But then the more I thought about it, even if it is just, like, say you just wanted to do, um, like, a mask, right? Like, what comes to mind is, like, um, the film The Rise of Leslie Vernon Behind the Mask, where he is the only creepy thing about his ensemble is the mask, right? It's this, like, weird, chalky green mask and he's just wearing overalls so i think when you go in with one piece but then you put it on the actor and the actor is wearing the rest of the outfit i don't think you can have one without the other anymore i i think once you put it on the actor it becomes an ensemble and whether it's a crazy sweater like freddy's with the fedora or it's just a, a normal outfit you can pull out of your closet or go into target and buy with a special hat or a piece on top, it then becomes the whole costume. So I I don't think you could have one without the other. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a really good way to put it. It's kind of like once you find your place with the character, it sort of cements itself, you know, with like with Jason, you know, that took a moment that took a moment for them to cement that look. But once they did, it just became the look, you know, there was some trial and error and just in the way that even the sleeves on Freddie's sweater weren't the same in the the first one as they were in the second, but then they remained that way. Once you figure it out, it stays that yeah. way. And, you know, franchises move so quickly, they don't necessarily take the time to roommate on it before they they go for it they are literally trial and error when they make them and so it does kind of you kind of watch the evolution of the costume and that's why it's not you know it's not just you know i think maybe in a perfect world for franchises they would have the right one from the beginning and then each time it would just get kind of yeah (laughs) but sometimes there is a little bit of trial and error and they they adjust things here and there like those little details and it finds its place but once you have those items, it it becomes a part of the narrative and, you know, but if on a level of like, do you need a bunch of accessories for a character to become iconic? I don't think no. you do. You know, it, it really does come down to the character. Like going back to Freaky, um, when I spoke with uh, Whitney Ann Adams, the costume designer for Freaky, she was explaining her process of kind of, gathering inspiration for that look and they were they wanted to lean into the slasher inspiration but they wanted to still be inventive and they wanted the costume to make sense and when you see that costume it's very simple it's he's just wearing essentially two dirty t-shirts like dirtier pants and 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 sneakers but it makes sense for the for the uh character and it also really if there's a quality of you know being able to stand out as a villain and even though his his outfit's simple in um in freaky the butcher still stands out from everyone else because he's juxtaposed Mm -hmm. and there there is just a quality of making sense for that character that cements the character regardless of 
you know, how many accessories you have. But I appreciate that Freddy Krueger is absurd and has an insane combination of of things happening for him. In oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I think also today it's easier to kind of pinpoint what pieces are going to work because uh, movies are being costumed very differently, right? So we're talking about franchises in the 70s and the 80s that, first of all, they weren't even using the word franchise. They didn't even know that there were going to be multiples of when they started that nine times out of 10 weren't employing designers, like, as we've explained, right. they, they're hodgepodging these projects together. And even on indie films today, they are consciously thinking about hiring costume designers. So the way that you are staffing your production crew is much different from today. So I think things are being thought about more. Things are being, like, not that they didn't take care, not that they didn't think about those things, but it's just a different realm to film. Like, you wouldn't go into a film today and not hire a costume designer. Like these are the things that you're thinking about when you're going in, planning your budget and planning these films. Um, right. So you're creating simpler pieces that are making effective statements, like a movie like Get Out, where you have our main, you know, the main character in all denim in this blue, with everybody else at the party wearing some sort of black and white with a, a, a small red accessory. So you're you're choosing that isolation. So it could be one piece. Maybe it started out as a denim jacket or the the jeans. But I think when you put it on the actor, like we were saying earlier, it, it evolves into the complete look of, of the character. Exactly. And that also just goes to say how important costuming your background characters yeah. are. And kind of and same with production design, everything flows together. You know, films are just a bunch yeah. of colors. And you kind of have to look at it that way to kind of think about what's going to make your your icon become an icon. Right. And a lot of that is playing with those colors and making very specific choices about what people are wearing and making it look cohesive without, you know, making it look like everything's matching or or, or too stark of a juxtaposition. You know, there's it's really just the art of balance. That's, I think, what it ultimately is, regardless of tone, because... You know, if something's campy, it's going to be more colorful. It's going to be more chaotic. But if some things are trying to do like a gritty realism thing, they're going to bring in darker tones. But what stays the same is the game of balance and the game of trying to figure out how to juxtapose your characters against each other in a way that visually characterizes them as much as possible. Yeah. And trusting your team and communicating with your team that like your lighting designer isn't going to put a light on your your piece that isn't going to show up like gross looking or like I've I've been in situations where like I've had pieces on stage and then the lighting designer didn't tell me that he was putting a blue gel on something and the green dress I had on stage turned like dirt brown and I was like what yeah. you everything is a moving yeah part. like you there's gosh yeah it's so much so collaboration communication just it all needs to come together to to make these projects work yeah absolutely and you know it's 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 such a joy being a costume designer because I know for me it's really helped me understand the collaborative aspect of filmmaking because you are really the costume designer kind of has to talk to everyone to make their make the dream work and you know I mean everyone has to talk with everyone but for costume designers you know 
we do need to know about lighting. We need to make sure it's working for us and them. We need, uh, you know, special effects. When it comes to special effects, we need to be talking about like, what do they need? Do they need like a duplicate with like holes in it for squibs? Mm -hmm. You know, things like that. There's, there's a lot of different moving pieces. It's not just like the costume designer picks an outfit and then it, you know, goes on stage and everything's good to go. There's a lot of like, there's tests involved and, is your actor comfortable yeah. in it? And do they feel like, you know, their their uh, opinion of the costume is really important too because you want them to feel like their character would wear Absolutely. that. And, you know, you'll probably hear us harken a lot about the psych- psychology behind costume design a lot on this podcast. Yeah. I think it's an angle that fascinates both of us, whether we're analyzing films like we did today or, you know, just the process of it. The process of it is really about getting into people's heads and maybe that's all of filmmaking, but it definitely is costume design. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for sitting with us. I know that this one was a long episode. Um, just depending on topics, some of them might be longer, some of them might be two parters, um, but we're so glad that you guys are here with us on this journey and I we can't wait to share more with you. Like we are so excited and humble that you guys want to listen to us talk about something that means so much to us. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you guys so much. It's been a really fun start to this podcast. We're really thrilled that you guys are interested in having these discussions with us. And we're just stoked to get more into the nitty gritty with you guys. And we really appreciate the support so far. And let us know if there's any topics or anything that you want us to cover. Um, Every time we do an episode, we're going to be doing, um, we're going to be open for questions on our social media regarding that topic and regarding just costume design, horror history in general, if you have questions for us. So don't be shy. Feel free to send those questions in and we'll discuss them on our episodes. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at to die for podcast. That's D Y E and on Twitter at die podcast. And next time you go into your closet, remember that your pieces could also be to die for. Bye.